Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the trustees. You can ring in spring at Nomkeg in Stockbridge with the annual Daffodil and Tulip Festival. Colorful seasonal blooms April 19th through Mother's Day. Advanced tickets required. More at thetrustees.org spring. And Trinity Rep, celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years, March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. Ahead on BPR, the Democratic governor of Louisiana signed the heartbeat abortion bill into law. Democratic Congressman Stephen Lynch is moving in the opposite direction, saying these extreme assaults on abortion are forcing him to reconsider if he can identify himself as pro-life in 2019. We'll talk about this, if the Virginia Beach shooting will make gun reform a central issue in 2020, and more on today's Politics Roundup. Then we talked to Charlie Sennett about the diplomatic conventions Trump has already violated on his trip to the U.K. before even touching ground, from insulting Meghan Markle to calling the mayor of London a stone-cold loser. Okay, at noon we open the lines and ask you if you're willing to forego travel in the name of saving the planet. Then Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price join us for their take on Robert F. Smith's vacating millions of dollars of Morehouse graduate student loan debt and what this could mean for generations of African Americans. That's next on Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio is supported in part by a generous gift from the estate of Gwen Tarion in memory of Gwen Tarion and Michael Blake. I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. I'm really disappointed. I thought we were going to be able to carry live the president's meeting with Prince Charles for tea, but apparently <laughs> there are no cameras allowed, which is really yep. disillusioned. No, tea Summit. Been, yeah, we have been watching them uh, over there running around Westminster Abbey all morning. But in any case, we'll get to that in a second. The mass shooting at Virginia Beach, which killed 12 people, has once again put gun control center stage, at least we hope, with the 2020 Democratic candidates reiterating their proposals on gun reform. Will this end up being a defining issue in 2020, or is this tragedy only raising the issue in the short term? Joining us to talk about this, how impeachment is becoming a litmus test for the Democratic candidates, and... Other headlines on today's political roundup are Shannon O'Brien and Charlie Chippio. Shannon is former Massachusetts state treasurer and former Democratic nominee for governor. Charlie is principal of Chippio Strategies and senior fellow of both governing and pioneer institutes. Hello, uh, lady and gentlemen. Hello. Good morning. Well, I was just saying, uh, Shannon and Charlie, how we've been watching the president and the first lady running around, Westminster, not running around, but getting escorted around Westminster Abbey uh, all morning. Why, why, are the, why are the Brits inviting the president? I have no clue. Perfect. But have you seen the 20-second ad where they have him coming, and it's this, like, cloud that keeps moving yes. across Great Britain, and it's the giant, ah. like, baby giant balloon? Baby yeah. balloon. I mean, it's hilarious. Uh, yeah. Hilarious. Well, there are going to be pres- uh, uh, a big protest tomorrow. Jim was saying there's going to be a quarter of a million people there, and the, and the mayor that the that the president, the mayor of London, uh, that the Kong. mayor has called a loser, stone-cold loser. And when you look at their House of Commons and the way they treat one another in what should be a, a setting full of decorum, you can imagine what they do in the streets oh, of London. Exactly. It's going to be fabulous. Yeah. You know, Charlie, the, 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 as I said in the tease to the uh, first hour of the show, he had insulted both the mayor of uh, London, who, as Marjorie said, he called uh, stone-cold loser, and Meghan Markle before the plane had even landed. And what I'm thinking about this, is it just Trump's inability to control himself? Or, no impulse control. Or, well, you know, or does that sort of behavior 
play big time with his. By the way, his approval rating is up to a record high a couple of days ago. Do you know what I mean? Is it well, possible I, it is strategic? Cause- well, I don't think so in this case. I mean, I think there are cases, there are certain topics where his behavior uh, plays well politically with his base. I, I don't think his base— Wait, it's a Muslim mayor of London who he's calling a stone-cold loser. Right, yeah. but, I, you know, I mean, Meghan Markle, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't mean, who's the offending? He's offending Marjorie. That's the <laughs> only person. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, I'm not the only Meghan Markle fan. And to defend her during her maternity leave, I mean, uh, yeah, no, that's, giving birth. It's, it's but, but, tough. Also, but, I mean, I can't think of a country that's any more divided than the U.S. than Great Britain. And, yeah. and the fact that you have Boris, you know, what's his name? Johnson. You know, Johnson, who may be, you know, and who is Trump's yes. friend, who also, you know, may have benefited in terms of the Brexit fight um, from some of the interference of the Russians. So he is talking to the same audience in Great Britain that he talks here. to here in the United States. What I find interesting about this is that the, uh, you know, other countries have sort of figured it out now that when they want something from Trump, it started with Macron. They did the same thing. Abe did the same thing in Japan. Now they'll do the same thing here. You have them over. You don't do anything substantive. You have lots of pomp and circumstance, and he loves it. And he's like, so what do you want? So that we cut a trade deal with them when they can't cut one yeah. with the EU? Is yeah, that right. what the uh, I don't goal I, I don't know what they want, but they, you know, this is the way to get what they want. Clearly. By the way, well, for those two... That's one of the two... theories, right? Yeah. That yeah. all the president cares about, not all the president cares about, but one of the things he cares about enormously is this circumstance, yeah, this pomp absolutely. and circumstance. And so Don't forget makes, the big military parade he wanted to have. Yeah, you know? it makes him very inclined yeah. to... For the sumo wrestler. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was... Okay. All right. So okay, so it's I enough guess we don't know why he's there. Well, so Charlie Sennett's going to be here in a half hour. Maybe he knows, because apparently <laughs> yes. nobody else knows why this... Especially, you know, Theresa May's gone on, what, Friday? Is that her? I think it's yes, her final Friday. day. Yeah. Yeah. So leaving. it's sort of the whole thing. And it, remember, he insulted her, too. Remember he said a couple of months ago, oh. he says, you know, if she had taken my advice on Brexit, things would have worked oh. a lot better. But, of course, she can do whatever she thinks is right kind of thing. So, in any case, on a much well, I don't know if it is much more serious note, uh, another dozen dead in Virginia Beach. And I, The reason I, we even decided to put this on the list, because it almost feels foolish to ask the question I asked a minute ago, is this going to provoke some uh, debate? In many of these mass shootings, when there's an immediate call for the uh, common sense gun reform that never happens, the uh, NRA types say, well, it wouldn't have stopped this. And while while we don't know 100 percent that if the GOP in Virginia legislature had not blocked year after year the uh, the legislation that would have limited these high capacity magazines. We're not a hundred percent sure. Straight party line vote that it would have caused uh, fewer deaths in Virginia Beach. The likelihood is that it would have. When you can make that kind of causal connection, does that cause anybody who's a resistor on this to get religion, or is the NRA still too powerful? Even though we'd like to say that their power is on the wane. I, I like to say that the NRA is still very powerful, but it is on the wane, and I do think that it's changing a generation of, of future voters in terms of what will happen um, with gun regulation mm-hmm. in the future. I mean, if, if you look at sort of the history, you know, in, in Australia, you know, within a very short period of time, they had, you know, a brutal, you know, murder with high-capacity weapons. And Port then, Arthur. You know, was it Port Arthur? Yeah, I think it was. And, and, yeah. Then they, and, then they, and then they, you know, made them illegal throughout the country in a matter of months. You know, the fact is, I think that nobody believes that, that because we have such a profound, um, you know, connection to our Second Amendment rights and what that does or does not mean, um, that no one wants to say that you could ever do anything like we did in Australia. But the fact is, making some of these changes around the edges, in the middle, 
taking these very high capacity weapons out of people's hands, it may not stop every single death, but it certainly would reduce. And if you're the person who has one family member who's killed, one death being uh, averted uh, is a big deal. And I do think that it's changing people's opinions here and in some traditionally strong gun states. You know, Charlie, if we had an NRA person here and uh, I were to ask what I just asked, uh, uh, Shannon will ask you, what possible argument is there against, particularly after Virginia Beach, but even before, uh, what argument is there against banning uh, high-capacity magazines? What's the answer other than they argue it's protected by the Second Amendment? Is that it? I think like so many other debates in this country, people stand where they stand and uh, the arguments don't matter, uh, that it's 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 just this incredible polarization. Uh, you know, I used to think, uh, particularly with some of the school shootings, uh, so you know, in the last couple of years that maybe there would be some movement on this. I I don't have a lot of faith at this point. I believe it's going to have to be generational. I, I, do I think, think you're that probably right. As you like gay marriage. See, like that gay way. marriage, that, that, that yeah. it will be slow. Um, I don't think you will ever fully – um, you know, to do what a company, country like Australia did, but that you will create greater yep. safeguards um, and, and eliminate certain weapons. But well, you know know gay is... marriage has been rapid, not slow. Yeah. I, I mean, the fact That's that we're I mean, yeah. close to two-thirds yeah. support for same-sex marriage in 2019 is but you amazing know, I me. think you're absolutely right because the, the young people that are growing up today are the children that had to be scared to death by these active shooter drills. We, yeah. we grew up, I grew up next to Westover Air Force Base you know, hiding under your desk, you know, having a nuclear. very... We were literally a high-profile target, you know, during, you know, the, the, the tensions with, with us and the USSR. And so that has an impact on a sort of generation of baby boomers. This... Kids think about this all the time. I mean, I know my own daughter on different occasions and parents in my own hometown, very low risk, but there were things that happened that we thought our kids were going to get shot. And so I do think that once it comes home to you, just like with the gay marriage debate, once it started becoming a, a public issue, everybody now realized who their friend and family member was. Well, they were more confident. Yeah. And then it, then it becomes personal to you. You know what I wish? I wish we'd talk about what, what really the, the, the Democrats, or the, because it's Republicans that, that generally are with the NRA and these things, say that millions of children in America have to be afraid so that you can have a high-capacity magazine, yeah. so that you can have a silencer. I mean, it's so insane. But that's where we're at, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, moving from uh, Virginia to uh, meet the press, uh, Chuck Todd had Mick uh, Mulvaney, the uh, the uh, uh, chief of staff to the president, on. And I assumed – I mean, I, the fact that he goes on in an era when, you know, there are no press briefings, there's no, I, I, you got to give the guy credit because he knew the question was coming. The answer to me well, – I guess it's not to be – Surprising. He was asked the question about the John McCain, USS John McCain, being covered up while the president and his boss was in Japan. Here's what Mulvaney said. The fact that some 23, 24-year-old person on the advance team went to that site and said, oh, my goodness, here's the John McCain. We all know how the president feels about the former senator. Maybe that's not the best backdrop. Can somebody look into moving it? That's not an unreasonable thing. I don't think it's an unreasonable thing. I think it's a disgraceful thing. And it... it I don't know what else he could say without aggravating his boss, who right. tolerates you know nothing except company line stuff. But what was your reaction to Mulvaney? Well, I'll tell you what. I watched it live, and my my jaw was hanging down. I, I you know it's just to me it was just yet another testament to just how how 
how far we've fallen. You know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's unimaginable to me. It, it, it just really is unimaginable. It is to so me. bad for me, Shannon, that I was ready to be more accepting of him lying. Yeah. And saying, yeah, yeah. we didn't know anything about <laughs> right. it. Yeah. I mean, it just, right. uh, we're not even sure right. it happened the way it's described. And Mulvaney, by the way, Mulvaney, I think, and Pompeo are like his, probably his two most effective spokespeople. I mean, they're able to feign rationality much better than Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And, and, and what they do is, well, you know, Chuck, you at NBC, if you yes. had two people who hated each other, you wouldn't sit them next to one another at a meeting, would you? I mean, the the, the, the analogy that he placed was <laughs> so right. disgusting when you think about the sacrifices that all three of the John McCain Jr. and the third mm, yep. have made for this country. And the reason that that ship was was, was named after them and, and honored them. I mean, the hilarious thing is they said, we did it for safety, meaning we, we put, the, we put the, 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 the tarp over it rather than send it out to sea because it might have sunk because it's being fixed. We did it I for mean, safety because we, we were afraid safety. the president was going to have a stroke. Yeah, <laughs> but but I mean, it couldn't go out to sea because it was being repaired. Otherwise, we would have sent it out to sea. Crazy. So uh. um, since, uh, since the special counsel, Mueller said basically repeated what's in the Mueller report uh, last week. There has been some increasing calls um, for impeachment. Where is this going, do you think, Shannon O'Brien? Well, I think that this puts Nancy Pelosi in a, in a very difficult position because, you know, Mueller basically said, unfortunately, once again, without saying it, and, and this is frustrating to me, that he's trying so hard, you know, to be like Caesar's wife, to be beyond reproach and to not yes. be partisan here. That it's getting he, a little precious, he, I think. But he creates more problems rather than saying the only solution I see here without talking about guilt or not guilt is that Congress, he needed to say something like that, yet he continues to refuse to say it. You know, that being said, I think it's difficult for Nancy Pelosi because you know, if you look back, you know, at the the different uh, impeachment scenarios in this country, um, there was bipartisan support and there is no bipartisan support because you only have one Republican, you know, in the House that is willing to say we need to look at this. So I don't know where she goes right now. I don't know, you know, whether it's a matter of weeks or months. Um, I do believe that she is correct in that this is a, a, a difficult thing if you don't have political support. But if you do open up impeachment hearings, I, I do think that you may end up embarrassing members of Congress enough to say Republican members of Congress to say we, we need to move this forward. But I think she's in a very difficult position right now. You know, the two things, Charlie, that I saw as relatively significant in this whole thing is one, uh, Jim McGovern, who is a member of the leadership team, even though he's a really independent, yeah. strong player. He's obviously he's the chair of the House Rules Committee, and I think mm -hmm. actually was on with Peter Kadzis and uh, uh, Adam Riley. It was yep. in the New York Times, it was mentioned, on the, on the, uh, scrum. Scrum. On the yes. scrum, where he first uh, said that he supported opening impeachment hearings. To be a member of the leadership team, and again, while he's independent, he's respectful. That was one. And two, I don't know if you were surprised. We haven't talked about this, Marjorie, since the Attorney General was here, I think, on Thursday. Marjorie asked the Attorney General, our Attorney General, obviously, Maura Healy, if she thought uh, the impeachment hearing should be begun. And uh, she is pretty respectful of local and, well, she is the top-ranking Democrat in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. but national Democratic leaders. And she had a two-word answer, no equivocation, I do. Uh, and I think that, and she reads the tea leaves, yeah. in my estimation, pretty well. I, I, both of those suggested to me 
that uh, that Pelosi may have acknowledged to her leaders it's coming, and we just have to figure out how to get from here yeah. to there. Am I off base? Well, I'd or say no? a couple of things. First of all, she is, uh, I think, clearly moving incrementally in that direction. It, it seems obvious to me. I, I wonder if there won't be some sort of a, a precipitating event, such as uh, Trump defying a court order that's or what something. Chuck Todd said it's yeah. going to be the trigger. Right. That's what he yeah. told Yeah, that's he right. I got it. that listening to your oh, show. Oh, good. That's okay. right. <laughs> I steal all this stuff somewhere. Okay. Some so of it's good. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so you know that that you know I think that may well be. I um, I think she's handled this very well so far. I still would say that if if they were to start that today, it would be a mistake because I think they really need very, very, um, uh, you know, sort of unquestioned evidence uh, to, because of the, the, the polarized nature of what's going on. How's that going to materialize? Where's that coming? Well, Other th- than him defying a court order. Because I think if he does something like that, yeah. uh, th- you know, that will really change people's opinion. And it seems to me that we're likely moving towards something like that. Now, the one other thing I really want to say is I have been and remain a big fan of Mueller. But I got to say, I watched that live last week. You know, I was having flashbacks for why after devoting six years to getting through law school, I'd never practiced <laughs> law a day in my life. You know, at some point, you just got to, like, speak direct English so and, you. and say what the hell's going on you know, here. I said this to Jim this morning. Yeah. I had read the obstruction of justice part of the Mueller report. I had not read the collusion report. I had a very exciting weekend of reading yeah. the collusion. <laughs> but two things. It's, it is really good reading. Yeah. It is really yeah. good reading because the level of involvement of the Russians and the ease that they managed to infiltrate everybody in the ease with which they got Fox News to repeat all their yeah. uh, false tweets was amazing. But what's amazing is Mueller cannot give what you learn as a writer is examples very well. When he talks about the infamous uh, grab women by the you-know-what, he talks about that as a tape in which the president uh, or the previous, before he was president, obviously, uh, disparages women. He doesn't say he said he grabs them by the you-know-what. He couldn't even use the term term, Hillary Clinton at the press conference. And when he gives examples of these tweets, I mean, you have to look half the time in the footnotes to get the really nasty tweets. So his inability to give give an argument, I think we should realize that at this point, is a real problem. That's right. And the other fact is that, look, he can speak in his you know, his uh, Greenspan kind of way about, you know, about how, you know, he's not exonerated. You you know, I hand this over to Congress. Look, he's got to he's got to appear and he's got it because one thing, you know, is that I mean, unless you say the same thing 500 times to the American people, they're never really going to get it. You know, I want to know what was the most stunning to me in this rollout since Mueller and, and I'm blanking on the Republican congressman's name. Amash. 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 Amash yeah. They interviewed a a woman probably in her late 60s, early 70s, who was a Republican, who I believe she was at this thing. Oh, yes, I saw oh, that. And she I heard that said, same thing. It was amazing. I never, never heard, heard it. Exactly. exactly. And so Bingo. this is, this is. I ultimately think, yep. what Nancy Pelosi is grappling with is that yep. there are this huge swath of people yep. who are so focused on Fox, which does not 
give the, the truth. entire picture. And that woman the they interviewed was a, a sort of she an activist. Stunned. She was she was, she was, stunned. She was somebody and who was so involved. I do believe that if there can be an opportunity to bring this out in a way where you do win over Republican-leaning citizens, I do think that it makes this process a healthier well, process. I think if, but if, that was stunning. Yeah, they've got to get these people in there. That's the problem. They're, everyone's being stonewalled, and if you can't get anybody in there, it's not going to do But also, right. he said that he didn't get all the... You know, the collusion issue was because he didn't get all the evidence. He didn't have everyone testify. They refused. And so the the, 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 the defying a, a subpoena, I think, is would be a turning point, and I think make things move more quickly, but also, I think, shift public opinion. Not in a landslide, but but slightly to make. So, it. since I'm always criticizing Republicans, let me criticize Democrats. Uh, this this policy, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, the leadership of the Democratic Party is very worried about another Ayanna Presley, Michael Capuano situation, when one of their longtime leaders gets offed by a young up and comer or Ocasio Cortez Crowley. Yes. I mean, those kind of things. So yeah. now they're actually enforcing. There's this great piece in the New York Times. This follows up on earlier stories we had about this but how they're actually enforcing this rule. And these consultants, one of them that worked for Ayanna Presley, is finding that um, uh, she, uh, her name is Amy Pritchard. She talks about how these, um, these a company like Delivery, Deliver Strategies, which is a firm, is not allowing consultants to go work for upstart in, uh, challengers to Democrats. It's pretty damn disgraceful. I mean, it's like they're protecting everybody's seats and blackballing uh, someone like Amy Pritchard, who wants to go work for a uh, up-and-coming consultant. There's some person that's running against this guy, Daniel Lipinski, out in Illinois, who's a very conservative uh, Democrat. He's been there for eight terms, and he's anti-abortion. Someone uh, uh, wants to run against him, and they're saying, uh-uh, can't help him, or you'll be in big trouble. This is your party, It's Shannon. my party, and it's stupid, and they shouldn't be doing it. The fact is... There was they, they 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 took a lot of hits uh, between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, and I would actually disagree uh, that with a lot of the, the the charges that the Bernie Sanders made because I think that you know they had equal access to the caucuses. They they won the caucuses, which are the most exclusionary parts of the Democratic electing party process. That being said, whether or not what they did was true or not true, they have the image that they have to uphold. Doing this is wrong, and they need to stop it immediately. So is there any movement, do you think? Have you heard any buzz about I, this? Again, I, I, I had not read this. Yeah. You know, uh, as a recent news story, I know it happened before, and we talked about this before, uh, but I do believe that the Democrats have to do something about this now and that, that uh, Tom Perez needs to be held accountable well, You know what's interesting? We didn't ask – Perez was in here last yeah. week. We didn't ask him about it, but it's interesting. They're sensitive to these other exclusionary things, right. as you call it. I think – I may be off by one – it, there used to be as many as a dozen caucuses in the primary or caucus in the Democratic <laughs> primary process. Yeah. I think there's only Iowa and Nevada yeah. this round because, and Perez said to us, he didn't use the word exclusionary because far fewer people participate, et cetera. So the irony is, which I wish I had thought of when he was here, is they're sensitive to that. Oh, and by the way, and they've essentially eliminated superdelegates on yes. the first ballot. Another yeah. exclusionary yeah. thing, mm-hmm. which obviously helped Hillary Clinton. I mean, as she said before the first vote was cast, in Iowa, uh, Hillary Clinton was up, what, 400 superdelegates yeah. or something. So it's interesting that this is almost an outlying kind well, of thing. my guess is that we're probably a couple of Washington Post and New York Times articles away from them getting sensitive to this, too. Maybe. I mean, but the, the difference here, of course, is that this has to do with people, the careers of people who are in office and in power. And, right. You know, so this is 
closer than anything to the, you know, to to the yeah. nerve center. And they're obviously arguing that this is going to prevent any young new women of color, women from getting from breaking in. Because I mean, you're always you're always complaining about everybody in the Democratic Party being ninety years old, Jim. I am. You should be up your alley. That is correct. Not ninety, eighty, but I know what <laughs> you mean. Before we break, by the way, maybe you can do a little Nostradamus thing, and then we'll get to local politics. So everybody is, a lot of people are celebrating Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz, apparently via uh, Twitter, agreeing to co-sponsor legislation that would either ban or limit former Congress people becoming lobbyists. Of the 535 members of Congress, I would bet if those two sponsored, that means there are 533 left, <laughs> I would say 533 <laughs> will vote no. Is that is that a roughly... You, you could be correct. And when I was looking at this article, what I wish they found common ground on uh, was legislation to roll back Citizens United. That yeah. would be real yeah. progress. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's... I'm totally is, with is him Ocasio on this, but... I, Yeah, is Ocasio Cortez as disliked by her uh, by her colleagues as Cruz is? Oh, um, I don't think it's about disliked. It's uh, like every one of those other people plans to become a lobbyist yeah, when 60%, they leave Congress. Yeah, sixty percent. So I, I think the answer is <laughs> I know. Yeah, I'm yeah. voting and no. And no one's going to hire Cruz anyway. So okay, yeah. we're going over the latest. That's right. You yeah. have to worry yeah. about it. That's right. We're going it's over okay, the latest headlines. Supreme Court by then. Yeah. So uh, we'll have to worry yeah. about it. From the State House, the White House with Shannon O'Brien and Charlie Chipio. We're going to get a little bit more local when we continue on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browning, Marjorie. Again, if you're just tuning in, we're talking politics with Charlie Chipio of Chipio Strategies and Shannon O'Brien, former state treasurer and former Democratic nominee for governor. So Stephen Lynch, a congressman from Boston, had an interesting op-ed in The Globe. Yeah. He's long been a pro-life guy, and now he seems to be uh, wavering because of what's going on in Alabama, Missouri, Ohio, Georgia, et cetera. Well, I mean, obviously, I applaud him doing that. I applaud him writing it. Um, and when you're um, considered uh, in company with Pat Robertson and Ralph Reed saying, this goes too far, <laughs> um, it's sort of an interesting uh, analysis of what the Alabama law is doing and, and what's happening and going to happen uh, with this issue. You know, I, for one, I, I welcome Congressman Lynch doing that. I think it's important for him to do. Uh, but it also reminds you, this is this is crazy town, what Alabama has done, uh, Missouri is doing. And I think that it is a good thing uh, for uh, more progressive forces because I think it's an energizing issue uh, that could help in uh, next year's congressional. I, and I also races. think it, it helps more progressive forces because of the fact that, look, uh, the court is not going to take one of those cases and 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 overrule because uh, they're too extreme. Because they're too yeah. extreme. I agree. With you that. know, and so you know, I mean, not that this is great, but I mean, the, it would be a better case scenario, I guess, uh, that they're more likely to follow a, a, a process of maybe sort of chipping away at it. Yeah. And 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 I think that this is another one of those, like, for those, for, you know, the need to get outside of one twenty eight once in a while. I mean, to realize that. The folks on the other side of this are so wild about it that uh, it, they would be just irrational, really, just from a purely political well, point of view. Well, that's exactly what Pat Robertson right. said right. about, I mean, you know, I, I, the I, issue is that, well, they probably should have taken another case that, you know, yeah. might have actually had an opportunity because they don't even believe that this holds up to congressional. Right. Well, you know, it was right. interesting. There was a, much was made last week of a uh, mother who had to have an emergency C-section at 23 weeks pregnant and mm -hmm. the baby survived. 
and is now coming home from the hospital. And of course, Roe uh, allows abortion up to 24 weeks. So it makes you wonder whether what's going to happen is a chipping away yeah, of the time. Yeah, I think that well, is Well, it's a chipping away. I mean, you know, science, I mean, obviously has come, come a, long a long way. way. And so I think that, you know. Viability I, I issues do, change. Right. And so I do think that that's something that, that both sides, you know, Obviously, on on the anti-choice side, they're going to be looking at that. But on the on the pro-choice side, they're going to have to be. Well, yeah, can I say one more thing about? I think Lynch. I don't want to get away from Lynch. I think yeah. this is a really important moment because yeah. I think he becomes, in many ways, a more important spokesperson if he chooses to be on this issue yeah. than a lot of other people who have been on the correct side of the issue all along. I mean, if you're in the middle, or at least have some self-doubt and and about whether or not you can vote for a Democrat. Because you're a pro-life person. I mean, hearing from somebody whose whole life has been openly pro-life and saying, you know, what does he say? Count me out. Is his final line yeah. in this yeah. thing? Yeah. I think it's pretty, sort of like they send Steve Lynch out to talk to moderate, yeah. you know, sort of Reagan Democratic uh, types in, in prior elections because he's not your typical Democrat on a lot of issues. So. Well, th- this is like the Joan Chittister. I've mentioned her before. She's a very yeah. famous Catholic nun that's that's very progressive. And, and she says she is pro-life. But to her, pro-life does not end at birth. We have right. to be pro-life in terms of health care and, and <clears throat> attitudes toward the poor and tax policies and all these things. And that is what pro-life is. So if you're just talking about, uh, you know, pro-birth, that's... Well, well, he, makes that point he made too. that point yeah, very yeah. well think, in the op-ed, yeah. you know, so, so. if they're being against contraception and all this other stuff, that you know, this is not pro-life. And I think that that is important for the, the pro-choice forces to not forget about, that it is how you frame this issue because sometimes it can be framed in the starkest of and you know again i've been there when you frame it in black and white when you frame it in the starkest of choices it sometimes creeps into that sort of mushy middle of people who may or may not personally um support abortion may not personally opt for something like that but they care about what the laws say i do think that the messaging around this in the in the coming years is going to be very important uh, for pro-choice forces to truly think about how they're appealing to a broader uh, you know, segment of our, our country. Just uh, one last thing before you guys go. We're three plus weeks away from the first two uh, Democratic debates, NBC doing them, I think, in Miami, 26th and 27th. I think the deadline for meeting one or both of the criteria, 1% and three recognized polls and 65,000 uh, contributors from X number of states uh, there's a piece about whether or not did James Pindle write it. I can't remember who wrote the piece. Yes, he about did. what happens to Seth Moulton if he doesn't make it. As <laughs> of the moment, he's met neither yeah. cry, uh, criterion. And uh, the, the the argument there is since there's so many of them, maybe it's not going to matter if people don't see him on the stage while ordinarily in a smaller group it might. What, what do you think? Again, it's not definite, but it looks yeah, not no, I, I, I think it doesn't matter in this sense. Uh, Seth Moulton's not going anywhere anyway, and and, and the the thing that is just uh, Shannon and I were discussing beforehand is you know here's a guy whose entire reason for running was has essentially been uh, uh, sort of co opted by Buttigieg, you know, young guy, veteran, that whole kind of thing has, you know, and I don't have anything against him, but clearly is going nowhere, has nothing to add to this race. Uh, I understand the idea that you get in in a situation like that sometimes because you just want to make a name for yourself, but I think he's. He's more in, uh, at, at risk of really embarrassing. Well, can himself. I uh, kind of disagree with that? I don't know if he's going to embarrass himself. That may be true, but I, about in terms of Buttigieg taking his place, 
Uh, while Buttigieg is a veteran, that's not his calling card. Uh, I would Nobody argue. Nobody, but Moulton's calling card since the day we met right. him years ago, and every single time he's been here has been about foreign policy and screwed up foreign policy, including the wars that he fought in. Do you think you share uh, Charlie's uh, sense? Here? Well, I, I just, you know, I, I I don't think that he has, you know, in terms of the timing, in terms of the messaging, you know, while, while I understand that his issue has been foreign policy and also it's been sort of as an upstart, you know, willing to, to rock the cart, right. if you will, um, I don't really think that um, the messaging on foreign policy has been resonating, you know, in this race right now. And it's not going to be the front and center issue right, right now, you know, although we certainly have seen foreign policy uh, not you know, work well with with President Trump. But it doesn't give you as big a bump in terms of, I think, your polling. But I think that this kills, you know, a lot of candidates who who can't self-fund or, or, you know, don't have some other – it it will hurt fundraising so that it it, it kind of makes it – but in terms of the absolute benefit of the the debate as well, I think that it's really the top-tier candidates, you know – figuring out how they can, you know, look good in this race and then a couple of sort of second tier candidates, you know, making an impression. Yeah. I don't think that that there would be too much that he could say or do that that would necessarily, you know, change things, but you know, that's what the moments are for. The rules but, around this debate also get back to another thing what you're just saying before Jim about this idea of the ways in which the Democratic Party has become sensitive to some of the things that they did wrong in the past because the rules were uh different the last time around mm-hmm. and they they sort of were not easy for the folks who were Can I end on a helpful note? Uh, I'm watching over your your shoulder. I'm watching CNN and the uh, CNN royal commentator, Uh Victoria Arbiter, is there. And the reason, the upbeat thing for me I wish I was the royal commentator. I was just going to say, you know, Marjorie and I often worry about what happens to us when we we lose this job. We both decided the most likely thing is we'll be greeters at the new casino in Everett. (laughs) But, But... but Marjorie, you could be CNN's. We know people at CNN. Absolutely. You could be the royal commentator. I think How so. great would that be? I think fi- a finer calling for my later years. Although yeah. I, I think uh, Ms. Arbiter, it looks like she's about thirty. And maybe so. John King would be calling you for once a week <laughs> exactly. for comments. You know, exactly. it's the other way around. I tell you, I could hang over there on the lawn of Buckingham Palace. <laughs> but I, I, are you? Do you look good in a hat? I couldn't do it because I, I do couldn't not. wear a hat. And yeah. don't wear don't wear the spike heels on the lawn like Melania. By the way, oh my God. she walk in those shoes? Marjorie is saying to me, right before we went on the air today, how can we work the hats into today's conversation? (laughs) And you did. No, we forgot. Trump's new hairdo. Yeah, well, that was was last night. That was not yesterday. He swept his hair back. I I think it looks much better swept back, don't you think? I think think you should have the Gordon Gecko do. Okay, we're embarrassing ourselves. (laughs) Nice to see you both. Shannon O'Brien is regularly. Shannon O'Brien is former state treasurer and Democratic nominee for governor. Charlie Chippio is principal of Chippio Strategies and senior fellow at both the Governing and Pioneer Institute. Thank you both for coming in. Coming up, the president has laid down some very rocky groundwork for his trip to England from insulting the Duchess of Sussex, that's Meghan, of course, to throwing his support behind Boris Johnson, Jim's friend. Charlie Sennett joins for that and other global headlines next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Gang. Queen Elizabeth is rolling out the red carpet for President Trump, but it feels a little bit like he's already tripped over it and stumbled his way into Buckingham Palace before he even touched ground. On the eve of his visit to the U.K., President broke all diplomatic conventions from wading into the Conservative Party's contest to find a new prime minister, he's for Boris Johnson, to proving Meghan Markle's point that he's misogynistic by telling the son that she's nasty. We'll get to the mayor in a minute. Joining us for his take on this and other election for Israel and a whole bunch of foreign policy things is Charlie Sennett. Charlie's a news analyst here at GBH. We also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Hello, Charlie Sennett. Hey, Jim. Hey, Marjorie. Yeah, we're hoping you have the answer to this riddle. We were talking about it with uh, Charlie Chippio and Shannon O'Brien. Why are the Brits inviting us, uh, not inviting us, but inviting the President of the United States now? What, what, what's the point? Uh, nice time for tea. Nice time for tea? I mean, in given the garden? This... Uh, I don't know. These things usually are in May and June. Um, they are? Flowers look good? Yeah, it's a beautiful time in London. I, I don't know. I mean, the tea, literally, the garden parties with the royal family typically are in May and June. I, I don't know anything beyond that. I think the D-Day celebration uh, put him in Europe. So the 75th anniversary of D-Day was part of a trip to Europe for President Trump. And I think that has probably the most to do with the timing. But these sort of royal events, the state dinners that they host are often this time of year. By the way, they're now called R-O-I-L events in light of uh, Donald Trump doing this. Here is, by the way, for those, for the, I just came up with that. Thank you, Jim. Being clever, lounge, Jim. never. So uh, for those who are have subscribed to what Donald Trump has said, that he never said that uh, uh, Meghan Markle was nasty, here is just a clip. This is an actual clip, not fake news, of Donald Trump's interview with The Sun. She said she'd move to Canada if you got elected. Turned out she moved to Britain. Well, I don't think that there are a lot of people moving here. So what can I say? No, I didn't know that she was nasty. Uh, I didn't know she was nasty. He didn't say that. Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, is a stone-cold loser. And again, he's getting himself involved in in, uh, intra-Britain politics by saying Boris Johnson, who we had on our show a couple of years ago, would be a... uh, an excellent prime minister. Who is the next prime minister going to be? Is it likely to be Johnson? It's, it'll be Boris. It'll be your friend. And what does this? Uh, uh, what does it mean for the topic we've discussed with you only about a hundred times? Uh, I mean, obviously uh, Theresa May is leaving because of the Brexit disaster. Yeah. Does it become less of a disaster with a successor from no. her party? No, I think I don't. I don't see how Boris Johnson. As as foppish and talented as he is, h- how he's going to possibly get this through, uh, given the fact that the deal is the deal. The EU is saying what Theresa May has presented as the deal is the deal we will consider. So what's the how's it going to be any different if it's May or if it's or if it's Boris? Um, the other option is they just do an actual hard Brexit, as they say. So a no deal Brexit. On October 31st or whatever that is. Right. Yeah. Which and means then, what? And then the third option is, Jim. Another a new vote. referendum. <laughs> Another vote. But, but if there is... And I actually Take it away, think, Jim. I, I actually think the new referendum is 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 way more in play than it was really? the last time. Because well, what is the no deal? Because the no deal, from what I've read, is mm-hmm. disastrous right. for Britain. Totally. I mean, the, the economics of, an, of, a, uh, of a no deal Brexit is is going to rock the world's markets, not just the UK, and a long-term diminishing of their trade agreements, how it would even work, what would happen to the border between the UK 
and Ireland is is completely unclear. It it will do it will inject into the UK even more of something that markets hate, which is uncertainty. And so I can't really see that happening. They're too smart for that. But but, but market uncertainty, one would assume that the EU, the remaining members of the EU, would care as much about market uncertainty as the Brits would. So why is their position, other than historical anger over the vote, that renegotiation is not it's not it's not a starter? There is no room to renegotiate anything, from what I've read. I think part of it is the EU is not trying to make this easy. The EU is saying to the to the UK, look. You initiated this. Mm-hmm. We don't want you to leave. We think it's a mistake. We think it weakens the EU. You've presented all these different options. We're now saying that's the option. That's the one on the table. We've, we've, we've looked at it, and we have evaluated that. We're not going to keep evaluating your new proposal. I have a brilliant See, compromise. Can I just say this? Yeah, I mean this sincerely, Go ahead. Go ahead. which allows me to mention my favorite topic <laughs> that Charlie just embarrassed me about. So I'll do it again. Why doesn't the EU say to them, I mean this seriously, uh, here's the deal, uh, boys and girls, Uh, have a second referendum. That's what I think will happen. And if the second referendum reaches the same conclusion that there is a Brexit, then we're open to renegotiation if you're willing to try again. And if not, we don't have to negotiate anything because you're staying in the EU. Isn't that a reasonable compromise? It's not only reasonable. I think actually now this long uh, anticipated (laughs) goal of yours to have a second referendum is going to happen because it's the only way you can say now the country can really vote on the deal. Like, so yeah. if we exit, this would be what an exit looks like. Well, and if we stay, point. we know it's staying. As so. opposed to the promises, many of which were proven to be BS. Right. Exactly. Well, that's, that's, that's the other thing that I don't understand because they did make all these promises, including glorious promises about health care right. and all these things that have been broken promises. It reminds me a little bit, frankly, of, of the president saying uh, in the election, everybody's going to get a much better, cheaper version of Obamacare. And, of course, what the hell happened to that? So I don't understand why the Brexiteers, that's what you call them, right, mm-hmm. the Brexiteers, yep. what their argument is, if it's going to be – if the, the, they were lied to by the Brexiteers – they're, it's going to be a financial disaster. I don't get. You mean the people Brexiteers, not yeah. the leaders? Yeah. yeah. Well, or even so the, Boris Johnson or N- Nigel Farage, whatever his name is. Well, for them, it's parliamentary politics and it's power and control. But for people who live in the countryside of of England or or in Wales and who who really believe that the EU has been a bad partner for them, and Which there it are, has there, in many are, in many cases. Absolutely, there are really rational arguments to be made that way. That those people also, I think, feel like they they are understanding, many of them, that the original idea of Brexit was a reaction against it. And now that the details are out, whether or not they still support it is a question, which is why I actually I, – I am, I am just a firm believer in the idea that the British are ultimately rational. They use common sense. They kind of like to pull up their socks and go on, and I think that's why we're going to have a referendum. So in the compromise that that, uh, May offered, and I guess she's not a very good retail politician. That's part of her problem, apparently. But in the compromise, do they give something to those rural voters that were concerned about Belgium making all the rules about their goat farms or sheep farms or whatever? I mean, do they do anything to help those people, or are they still in the same boat um, in the compromises they would be with a hard Brexit? Uh, you know, I would, I, I, I really want to go through all the details of the agreement to be precise about this. But yes, there are absolutely solid parts of this agreement as it exists now before the EU that will help. That will help them agriculture, okay. 
in the UK. So they may have been in favor of her proposal, even though it hasn't well, gotten anywhere. Yeah, they're in favor of parts of it, even though it can't get through and they can't get the parliament to agree. Because this is parliamentary politics. And remember, the Northern Ireland and Ireland piece of this, the hard border, it cannot be reimposed. And this is a huge part of how they couldn't really get consensus around this. So this isn't really about what's good for the for the people, necessarily, from Farage or Boris Johnson's point of view. It's politics. It's just it's, the same as if I was trying to... I was just going to say, it's, what's the difference here? Uh, yeah, it's I mean, trying to get something... Done- God, well, I'm people sorry. at least pretend it's good for you. I mean, they lie to you <laughs> and, and pretend we're going to get great. We're going to have a tax cut for They're the middle class. They're all pretends class. is gone. Yeah, but th- the, exactly. Sorry, Jim. You were no, you go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say what, what, that here, essentially, how rare is it for a politician to admit, uh, frankly, I, my position was X. I've looked at the facts, the outcome of X, and I was wrong. Right. I, I mean, that, right. they just – I mean, and I love that when it happens, even if it turns out the switch of position is one I'm not crazy about. If it's fact-based, it's uh, well, to be admired. It but it has happened. It ha- rarely. 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 But I remember Barack Obama talking about how he was wrong about gay marriage, mm-hmm. and he evolved and changed his position. You see mm-hmm. a lot of politics. Johnson on civil rights? That's a very good point. It does happen Before in, we in move on from, from, from UK, I, just, I don't want to miss a chance to say that it is a really big deal that President Trump is intervening in this tremendous tumult of politics politics in the UK right now. It's unusual for a president of the United States to support a rival candidate and to dismiss the acting prime minister, Theresa May, as incompetent. Well, wait a second. He said a couple of months ago, Boris Johnson. he said a couple of months ago that if she, if Theresa May had listened to him on Brexit, they would have been able to cut a decent deal. And then he goes on to say, but of course she should do whatever she wants. I mean, he, he interfered in arguably, the, not arguably, inarguably in the, the thing yeah. that caused her to lose her job. I mean, right. and... And he clearly wants Boris Johnson. It was written in the British press this weekend that Boris Johnson is Donald Trump if he had gone to Eton. Well, let me tell you something. Before we had Johnson, I, really also, like I know that. we talk about his hairdo. Two other another great hairdo. It's the same Johnson hair with that blonde hair. By the way, this is not an endorsement nor a criticism of his politics. Before yeah. we had Johnson on the show, whatever it was, a couple of yeah. years ago when he was in town. Uh, I read he is I mean to make your point yeah, he's he is really really smart he's people really may smart not guy. like his politics and he may be fringe in a right. number of ways right. now but this smart. guy is really well educated really and brilliant and well educated sure. but is, I think yeah. the the thing that is to really think about right now as president trump is there in london and all these events are unfolding is that you know you see the huge uh the, the, the big, like, Easter Day parade float of him as a baby, yeah, you know, sure. the the baby diaper Trump. Thing, yeah. Quarter million diaper. people tomorrow protesting. Quarter million people. These are big protests, but this isn't new. Like, honestly, I was in London when the protests started to happen around the war in Iraq against President Trump. Yeah. They were, they, there were more than a million people in the streets of Bush. London. Excuse me. Uh, did I say Trump? Yes, okay. Bush. President Bush, when we were in going into the war in Iraq, uh, there was the whole sort of collapse of the North Atlantic agreement around how we conduct foreign policy really was the war in Iraq. There were millions of people on the streets of Europe. And I just keep hearing all these reports of unprecedented protests mm-hmm. against the United States. It's not really true. Do you remember what the British press, ones? how they referred to the nickname yeah. for uh, Tony Blair? Bush's, Bush's poodle. poodle. Yeah. yeah, that was. And they, do you remember it was right at the time that President Bush had, had choked on a pretzel? In the in the White House, yeah. watching right. a sporting I event, remember that. and all of the protesters had pretzel, like little pretzel signs. This was um, 
a time of great antipathy towards the United States. It was uh, an expression from the streets that was loud and prominent. And I think if you step back and you tried to look at the arc of history and the moment we're in right now, you'd say this isn't just that Trump is alienating the UK because of who he is and the way he's talked to the mayor and the way he insulted some of the royals themselves. There's a, something bigger about an unraveling around our relationship, the special relationship, as Winston Churchill called it, that's happening over time. And it's an important erosion around NATO and the, and the unbelievable memory of the 75th anniversary of D-Day. What, what was forged, the international alliances forged out of that war are important, and they've, they've all been uh, eroded by this president and also part of a process of the United States growing further and further from the U.K. that goes at least as far back as George W. Bush. Charlie Senate, uh, uh, speaking of do-overs, there's about to be an historic do-over in Israel because Netanyahu couldn't form a government. What a wild Waiting ride, huh? in the horizon is, what, an October hearing on possible criminal conduct by Netanyahu coming against the backdrop of an audio recording having Secretary of State Pompeo essentially saying that the uh, Jared Kushner Mideast peace plan is undeliverable, doesn't have a chance in hell, even though I hope people will at least you know, mm-hmm. listen to it. I mean, talk about chaos. There sounds like there's chaos on steroids there. Is that not the case? Yeah, this is, this is um, you know, they, they say that the Trump administration plays with fire all the time. But in the Middle East, you're not just playing with fire. You're playing with fire and high-grade explosives all the time. And I feel like this this turmoil around how they relate to the Middle East is particularly dangerous because it's a very volatile time there. But the politics of Israel are always wild. They're always unruly. Every time I think I've figured them out, and I think it's Netanyahu's last show – he survives. And has I, there ever I, been I, a revote because he can't form? This, this has never happened in Israel's electoral history since the founding of the nation. So there's no, there's no precedent for this. But Netanyahu is, is, is an extraordinary candidate and an extraordinary politician, and he could well survive this. The calendar is so tight, though, right? September 17 election. Then you have the October hearing where he could be actually indicted at that point. So why would a coalition get behind him if they're fearing he could be indicted when he doesn't have time to be in office, to put forward the legislation that will allow him to not, so that, so that a sitting prime minister could not be indicted in Israel? That was his goal, was to create that law. He doesn't have time now. It's, it's sort of like the hourglass has run out. On, on Netanyahu's um, strategies for how he was going to survive this thing. And the person who, who really made that happen was Avidor uh, Lieberman, who's the, the leader of, of this kind of spoiler conservative party, and it's fractured the conservatives. Do you hear what you Bill know, Barr said this morning very quickly, the Attorney General of the United States? He, he says the Office of Legal Counsel Memorandum also applies to Netanyahu. Oh, okay. I don't know if you're aware. <laughs> okay. You know, we're running out of time. I want to have time to talk about two yeah. great things. Right. First of all, your, your 11th hour last night uh, about World War One that was on the radio. Thanks. And also, you're very much, you're up to your eye teeth over there at the Ground Truth Project in Report for America. Great what a great story, story in the globe. In the globe about what's going yeah, on with Report for America at our sister station, WCAI, yeah. down in Falmouth. Tell us. Yeah. So, well, thanks on the 11th hour. I, it's, I've said this to your audience on this show before that, the time we live in right now is very similar to World War I. We need to understand the sort of the way we are in a very similar moment of a power vacuum and how really dangerous things can happen. And that was the purpose of the documentary. Um, you can also get it on, on the Ground Truth podcast, which you can find on iTunes or wherever. 
But the Globe story, thank you. That was a it was a great story about our new partnership with WCAI. It's part of a ground truth initiative that we call Report for America, which is like Teach for America for journalism. So amid this time of crisis in journalism, when we're watching. Journalism, particularly local journalism, is so stressed out around the country. We're lucky here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We have the Globe, we have GBH, we have some strong news organizations. What a bunch of local papers we read. Just been rebought by locals. And that gatehouse is closing a bunch of local uh, outlets. Just laid off. Yeah. 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 So no, this is a. You know, I often say the crisis in journalism has become a crisis for our democracy. And nowhere is that crisis more felt than on the local basis. So at Ground Truth, we're trying to build this new program, Report for America, where we go in and we actually offer young journalists an opportunity to serve communities where local journalism is dying. And And a great piece. People should read it. And this young woman is specializing on the uh, climate change impact down on Cape Cod, which is huge. Eve Zuckoff, she's an amazingly talented reporter. We can't wait to see what she She does. Better work fast, let me tell you. I knew it. (laughs) Her dad's a big reporter, a longtime guy at the Boston Globe. And her mom is a beautiful photographer. Oh, there you go. She has really good bloodlines for journalism. Very good bloodlines. Okay, good for her. Charlie Sennett joins us every week. He's a news analyst here at WGBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Thank you, Charlie. Up next, we're opening the lines, asking you, in the name of climate change, are you ready to make the staycation the norm? No more airplanes for you or not? That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Coming up on Boston Public Radio with climate change destroying natural resources at an accelerating pace. There's a compulsion to see the world before it burns up or gets washed away. But should we do Mother Earth a favor and stay put instead? With all forms of travel taking a toll on the planet, we're opening the lines asking you in the name of protecting the environment. Are you willing to pack up your travel plans? Ben Reverends Irene Monroe and Anna Price are here for another edition of All Revved Up. And TV Bob Thompson previews Anna DuVernay's take on the Central Park Five. So when it comes to being healthy, the tried and true rule is all things in moderation. It turns out that's true for TV as well. A new study finds that binge watching is definitely bad for your health. We're taking your calls asking you, are you ready to go on a TV diet? That and more is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio is supported in part by a generous gift from the estate of Gwen Tarion, in memory of Gwen Tarion and Michael Blake. Egan, you're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. Hey, do you have any plans, trips planned in the near future? Uh, well, now I'm feeling very guilty. I don't have any trips planned, but I guess I'll have to walk. Yeah, you <laughs> will. You know, well, and I'll tell you why. While climate change is the top priority for voters shopping around for a 2020 candidate, at least according to the polls, is it a top priority in our own lives, especially when it comes to travel? Sure, we can, we can recycle and bring our own bag, but does that exempt us from flight? 
let's say from New York to Los Angeles, which according to researchers, listen to this number, it'll melt 32 square feet of Arctic ice, that one flight, not the whole flight, our role in that flight, our trip. In other words, the next time you read about, let's say, a polar bear drowning, depending on your frequent flyer mileage, you might have to blame yourself. We're taking your calls asking you, instead of flying the friendly skies, is it time to be friendlier to the environment? Is this another source of guilt you're just not ready to deal with? Is it relief instead of feeling lame or unadventurous for all your staycationing? Do you now have the cover of being environmentally conscientious? The number is 877-301-8970. There's something that I had never heard of. It's called the no-fly movement. You ever heard of this? These I are have people now. who are going on uh, trips but are doing it alternative ways. Greta Thunberg, who we have discussed ad nauseum here, little 15-year-old Swedish environmentalist, when she went to the World Economic Forum a month or so, where was that, Davos? I think it was in Davos. 32-hour train ride, both directions. Good for her. 100% a function of her attempt to be responsible vis-a-vis the environment. You know, cruise ships, I learned today, I didn't know this. If people are saying, well, take a cruise ship to Europe, four times as much of a carbon impact is flying on a plane, both of which yeah, are atrocious. That, cru- that cruise ship crashed at the dock in Italy. I saw that it. was but you know, <laughs> pretty just, scary you know, stuff. before people think this is ridiculous uh, uh, to talk about, it, almost everybody I know, and I, what I said before is true. Almost everybody I know feels guilty if they don't put their recycling in a can or a bin and take it out. The impact of that, which obviously matters to the vast majority of us, is a little gnat is compared to taking a cross-continental or intercontinental flight. And so the question is, are you, are we going to revisit our travel plans if we say we are climate change warriors or warriorettes in our case? Well, are you flying anywhere this summer, Jim? You can be the first one to do it. I actually was supposed to. I had a round-the-world tour, and I've canceled it. (laughs) Instead, I, uh, I'm going to the casino on, in Everett. Instead. Why not? Exactly. Because <laughs> there'll well, be a lot of international travelers there, so I can have the same sort. I have know, to say, if I had a big trip, I don't have a big trip that I'm on a plane. I have little trips on a plane. But if I had a big trip planned on a plane right now, I have to say, I'd, I don't I don't know what I'd do. I mean, I guess I'd do it, but the, the data, this is not some abstract notion. Again, 32 square feet of Arctic ice disappears based upon your participation in a single flight from New York to L.A. That's concrete and huge, is it not? Yeah, it, it is really huge. Everybody always makes fun of all the uh, pe- climate change people like Leonardo DiCaprio uh, running around extolling well, the virtues too. of climate change, and they're flying all around the country in their private jets to go to all these events. But, you know, the realistic problem is that uh, most people do not have much vacation. If they're going to fly down to go to Disney World, take the kids to Disney World, they're not going to drive because it's going to take them, what, how long does it take to drive to Florida, like three it's days or something? so I guess two plus. And, and you know, the trains are really expensive. It just gets back again to one of my things I'm obsessed with, that why can't we have high-speed rail in the United States like every other industrial well, country? Well, you and I are going to be long dead before, and our kids I mean, are probably going to be crazy? dead, too. crazy? Isn't that crazy? It would change everything. Well, by, by the way, most of us who have supported high-speed rail for years was more about time management rather than environmental concerns. But obviously, it's a big environmental impact issue either as well. But there's no evidence the United States is about to do anything. By the way, uh, th- this is just a little more sobering 
Professor John Nolt, this is a New York Times story from the University of Tennessee, has been measuring the damage done by one average American's lifetime emissions. This is upbeat. The average American causes through his or her greenhouse gas emissions the serious suffering or death of two future people. So it, oh, my God. Oh, good. But I mean, let's stay on the flight thing, by the way. Just would you give up most of your air travel? Uh, I don't mean, you know, a little bitty thing to the case. Well, even that. Uh, would you give up most of your air travel uh, because of your concern for uh, the environment? And I, you know, I don't know what I'd like to think I'll do the responsible thing. And there are alternatives. Uh, there's not an alternative. You're right. To get your ship doesn't get you no, there. I did a roots, more, uh, roots tour last summer of Ireland. You oh, I you did. That's true. But you flew we to flew, Ireland. We all yeah. flew. So how's this so going to affect? I guess that was terrible. I, I mean, should... you're you are obsessed with climate disruption, this, as you call it. This summer, I'm going nowhere. So I'm serious. I would like to say I was making a protest that I was giving up my flights, but actually, I had no flights planned. So I guess I can't I can't say that. Stephen wants to know uh, if he 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 if he uh, if he. Good, doesn't drive anywhere. I had, well, I've lost the email. Yeah. I have to find it again. Oh, well, here it is. Here it is. is. Here it? it is. He says, is it okay if I only drive on vacation as far as I can get in the amount of gas I would otherwise use on my lawnmower <laughs> if I stayed home? 877-301-8970. Let's start with Cynthia in Maine. Hi, Cynthia. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Nice to be talking to you. Uh, it's a, one of my favorite shows. I listen to it almost every day. Oh, you're very nice. Thank you. What's up? Um, well, I just got back from Philadelphia, actually, mm. last night, uh, visited family, um, took Amtrak both ways, uh, two of the two, you know, almost two full days. And then in September, um, this was my third time ca- coming across country. I uh, rode the Amtrak, Amtrak from San Francisco wow. to uh, Boston. You with did? In Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, I've done it three times. I did it now, in my 20s. It, isn't it a ton of money, though? That's one of the things about Amtrak that is... It, it's it upsetting. Can it can be. And, um, you know, some there are a lot of people who ride the train. And I will be honest, I, I fly a lot internationally and, and nationally, uh, but I don't like to fly. And But I'm, you know, I'm used to it. But I love train rides and have just ridden, you know, trains throughout the world. And um, really, really, if I had my druthers, I would take only boats and trains if I could get to Europe on a boat. You know, or you can actually, but I would really, I would really just do that. I take the time, and um, I realize time's you know a problem for a lot of people. But, but Cynthia, can I get back to your yeah. Philly and your San Francisco deal? Uh, and yeah. by the way, you're talking to two people. If you listen to the show, you know I we're both train trains. lovers. So because you can oh, work, great, great, great. But I've never, awesome. neither of us have ever. You've never done a cross country train thing, have no, you? No, I haven't. So did you do those things because it was beautiful and you love trains, or because you were concerned about the environmental impact of your air travel? Both. Really? Uh, very much both wow. because I'm really in a big process. I've talked to my friends a lot about this. I'm trying to really do a major uh, de-plasticking right now in my life and, and de, you know, and just sort of all various environmental um, situations. I you. talk extensively up in the, to the transfer station manager about, you know, we need to use compostable bags and things like that. But in terms of train train trips and travel, yes, it's really, really both. And um uh, the train is, for instance, going to visit my family in Philadelphia. You have a day where, you know, you can use your computer. You can do all those yeah, things. Yeah, you can work. You're great. You can work you on can the train. Work, 
but you can you can, it's really meditative and the trip from when I this fall uh sorry last fall when I came from San Francisco to Boston I had a stop in Philadelphia but it's a number of days it was 3 days to get to Philadelphia from San Francisco and I do um save up the money so that I can get a sleeper car cuz I'm in my 50s I'm tired I'm not going to Where are you from in chair. Philadelphia Cynthia before we let you go Oh I'm actually from Michigan but oh. I have family in Philadelphia oh. Cynthia I have one more question before you go you said sure. you were deplasticizing so I what yeah. do you what do you use on food instead of plastic? Well, I'm trying to, um, yeah, you have to really, you know, really force yourself. It's easier in summer to not, when you're buying vegetables and, and things like that, I'm trying to just buy ones that I can pick up by my hand yeah. and not get food that's wrapped in plastic. Um, what were some of the biggest things? The thing, the biggest thing is I, I, I'm in the arts and I have a, an art studio in South Berwick and I'm actually... When I went and I had to set up the whole thing in the last month, I really went and I tried to buy appliances or tools, uh, even the furniture. I'm trying to – it was either um, wood or metal. Well, Good you are amazing. You. Cynthia, well, call, no, us, I, it, call us again. You, you, can't, you can't – oh, thanks. Well, I love the show, and thanks. but it's, it's an effort, and I really recommend the train. It's meditative. It's soothing. You meet people. It's very different from the plane, a plane ride, and it's just, it's just wonderful and it's good for your health. I was fine with the meditative and soothing, but then when she said you have to meet people, that was the end. <laughs> well, but Cynthia, thanks. That was a fabulous call. I mean, as many people have no doubt noticed, when you take the train to New York City and you go through Rhode Island and you go through all those beautiful oh, little beautiful. towns with their beautiful little harbors, you have to make sure you're on the right side of the, well, actually the left-hand side of the train when you drive, when you go down to uh, to New York so you can see all those beautiful How inspiring and guilt-producing was she? Yeah, I mean, how conscious guilty. is she? I mean, she's making decisions from buying produce to yeah. traveling to the West Coast based in great part on environmental concerns. Is some of those it. plastic bags that you get, like the newspaper in, they're yeah. recyclable? Mm-hmm. But I'm suspicious. How can they be recyclable if they're know. plastic? Talk to some plastic. Well, and Heather is here. Heather Goldstone's here next okay, time. Okay, we'll ask her the question. 877-301-8970. Speaking of Rhode Island, Russ is in Rhode Island. You're on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Russ. Hey, guys. Good afternoon. And uh, to you. First, I would... I would like to express my distaste at having to follow someone who is so good at this. Yeah, it's very uh, upsetting not, for us all. I'm not quite that good. I use uh, reusable shopping bags, and I drive a Prius. But also, I stopped ordering from Amazon, and I stopped picking overnight and next-day shipping. I can only afford to take a vacation on an airplane once every two or three years. Mm-hmm. But I realized I was ordering packages that were being flown all across That's the country. That's a great point. That's a great and point. how is that any different? Uh, to me, it seems unfair that, you know, we're going to put the guilt trip on everyday people, yet we're going to use, like, my tax dollars to subsidize companies that pollute on a scale that we could never even imagine. And that's, you know, I, I, try, I try to do what I can in my everyday life, but I don't think limiting my vacation when we have all these other things is really the most effective answer. Well, Russ, you know, I agree with that. It is clearly not the most effective answer. But when you have a, a government that is so resistant to sane behavior on the issue, then I guess you can either throw up your hands or do what you're doing, which is what you can, as with Cynthia, and and keep hoping that you have a government that is willing to make the changes you 
want made? Why do you have that look on your face? Because I just ordered some stuff from Amazon. No, but I think Russ makes a very good point about the speedier delivery. Well, I don't even know. Hey, Russ, one before you go away, I'm assuming non-speedy yeah. delivery of most things from Amazon, even if it's not overnight, is probably by plane as well, no? Well, actually, I stopped shopping on Amazon oh. completely. Like, I, I try to order directly from people or local, and good. I try to try to choose the cheapest shipping option, which often is ground. Well, local, you know, you're oh, both right. of you embarrassing oh, us too, on. Russ. Thanks. That is a really stupid question. Ground shipping. Ground right. shipping. No, I'm the one that asked it. I'm shipping. the stupid one. I agree. But also, you should buy local. These are two callers that embarrass this. I mean, they're both totally right. There are things you can do while you're waiting for major change. So the answer is we have to give up Amazon. We can't fly anywhere. No more plastic wrap. No more plastic yeah. wrap. Yeah. I, I, I have been using a lot of Pyrex, but I suppose with the covers, but I, that's probably made from horrible things, so I'm probably not yeah, doing it. Yeah, but you reuse it. I reuse it. You, re, you put, keep putting the top on. You don't throw out the top oh, you of have a my, Pyrex container. Yeah, my green things. Yeah, I have those yeah. green things every Boy, day. Boy, let me just tell you, that cereal you brought that I ate all of while you were in the Probably. women's room was. At least I'm what sorry, I should have asked. I go to the bathroom and I you come have to back. Take all your items and there with goes you. my lunch <laughs> and my breakfast. Deborah from Jamaica. Really thank good. you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Deborah from Jamaica Plain. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Deborah. Good morning or afternoon, I guess. How are you? Good. Fine, thank you. Marjorie, I was very happy to hear you bring up high speed rail because it's shameful that we don't have that kind of transportation as an option. I know. I know. But, it's crazy. My point when I called was, first of all, to say it's easy to do staycation in Boston. This is a fabulous place. We have fascinating things to do and keep everybody busy. Not everyone is as lucky as we are. Yeah, but can I tell you the flip side of that, which which is mentioned in one of these articles we read in anticipation of this discussion, is, and this is sort of the the irony of the whole thing, one of the reasons why people like me are more interested in long-distance travel than I used to be Deborah, is because a lot of those things I worry about disappearing, and then I read the articles and realizing I am hastening the disappearance by virtue of my travel. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, right. I know. It's sort of six of one, half dozen of the other. I Something went to like Venice that. because I wanted to see it before it was underwater. Exactly, right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, Venice is going to be gone. I've never been there. Have you? Deborah, thanks. You know what we should do one of these times with uh, Christopher Muther when he's here? I'm sure he writes about these things. But there have also been pieces, not only in The Globe, but in Boston Magazine, about great things to do around New England. If we're really so concerned about this issue, maybe rather than just talking about faraway places with Muther and others, we should be talking about things that one can do closer to home, no? Well, lots of people are emailing about that, that like they what? do a lot of staycations for financial reasons and mm-hmm. because, uh, not so much climate reasons, but because there's a lot of stuff around here they haven't seen. And I think that's true of all of us. There's a lot of stuff around here I haven't seen. Like what, for example? Uh, I haven't taken that. Well, I guess this is a boat ride. So the maybe ICA it's not boat? So, yeah. I, I know you want to do that. I, I want to go on the ICA little boat. little taxi? Yeah, a little taxi. Go out and see this great art, art exhibit. I haven't been In to a lot. In East Boston. Was it seven minutes or something? Yep. Yeah, yep, it's pretty neat. And the, and the ICA is a really beautiful building in the summertime. You can sit out on the back porch and have lunch. Wen from Sharon. Hi, Wen. Hello, Wen. Hi, how are you? Great. Um, thanks for taking my call. I'm just wondering, so I have two very young kids. We've been doing staycations for a long time because traveling with children is not a vacation. Um, but, you know, we did go to Florida recently, and I've been thinking about our travel. And I'm, I'm just wondering if, you know, say the 200 people who were on the plane with us did not take that one flight to um, to Jupiter and all decided to drive across the country on road trips, what would be the emissions of that total? I, I don't I, I don't know, but I'm just wondering if that would be somewhat comparable to taking one plane ride. 
Well, I don't know what the answer is, but if you go to this piece written by Andy Newman on June, is today June 3rd? Today. It's called If Seeing the World Helps Ruin It, Should We Stay Home? It includes a lot of calculations, including, I, I don't know if it has apps here, but it mentions researchers who have calculators that allow you to be do, doing what you're doing about alternative transportation and what the impact is of those uh, kinds of things. I mean, I would be interested in an app that did that, told me what my carbon footprint was from different kinds of transportation. And then you make an informed decision. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that ships were, were worse either I didn't either until, until this morning, I saw yeah. this piece. Wen, thank you. Uh, appreciate your call. Uh, let's go to Keith in Alabar. Hi, Keith. Hello, Keith. Hi, how are you? Great. Fine, thanks. Um, I was just thinking that if we don't stop using plastic, does it really matter how much we travel? Because that's damaging the world a lot more than travel is. Oh, and that's a great point. We good telling us that uh, plastic was actually being recycled, and we were deceived, because now I'm finding out that when I throw away a piece of plastic, it winds up in a landfill in Korea. And I just can't figure out why a country like America, with all the scientists and everything we have, we can't figure out how to recycle plastic. And if we don't stop using it, all the little bits are going to end up in the ocean where they're ending up now, and it's going to kill all the fish, and it's going to kill the earth. So does any of it really matter? Well, you know, Keith, on that last note, did, didn't we uh, cite a stat that is it by 2050 there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish? I think if it yes, continues yes. at the current rate, it's just frightening. And that whole story yes. from a week or two ago from the guy that went to the – is called the Mariana Trenches where he went mm-hmm. deeper into a place where no human had ever been before. And while it's true that no human beat him there, the plastic at the bottom of the ocean beat him there. That's I heard that. That's that, – that's... I'm, oh, I lost yeah. Keith. Because that, that is one of the most horrifying stories that one can possibly imagine. Keith, thank you for the call. What are you uh, so intently looking I'm at? I'm just looking at different people's, what, what people are trying what are to they do. Saying? Well, it's one from Joy. She just said she's trying to cut down plastic using reusable silicone bags in a girl's lunches, glass containers with tops. You see a lot of people doing that now, the glass containers with the tops of the Pyrex with the tops. And uh, bento boxes instead of plastic yeah. bags in my kids' lunches. Do you know what those are? Yeah, those little – I mean, I think they're mostly like strawish kind of uh, boxes that you can – pack a lunch kind of yeah. thing in. You know, but by the way, there is some evolution. I, uh, you remember as recently as maybe 18 months ago, you and I were talking on the radio about the uh, reusable bags, the the, the cloth yeah, bags. Wash them. And we, I was complaining that they get so dirty and disgusting. You just disgusting. Put them in the washing machine. You just wash them, exactly. Yeah. It's not that big a deal. Well, well, I, but I did a math just now. I it was a if I deal. continue to evolve at the mm-hmm. same rate environmentally as I did on the bags, yeah. the world will be over, I think, about three <laughs> centuries before... I mean, we need to do some drastic things right away, and I, we should contem- contemplate and maybe discuss next week. What would you do if you had a, if you wanted to go to Ireland, for example? You'd never been to Ireland, and you went, and if you had that trip planned this summer, and someone gave you the data to show what damage you're going to do, would you have canceled? Well, the it? bottom line is you wouldn't be able to go because I, uh, no one could get the vacation to go if it's going to take you three days to get there and three days to get. Well, there's back. no way to get there because you can't. Boat is worse, and the plane is horrible. Oh, that's right. So you couldn't go to I Europe guess you at just all. Never go. That's just it. row. I mean, it's... It's... are you a good rower? <laughs> we have to go on a sailboat. Maybe yeah, you maybe. think so? I don't know. It's a dilemma, Jim. I have a friend who has a little sailfish. Can you do one of those little? That's a, one of those little baby things. <laughs> up next, the Reverends Iron Monroe and Emmett Price are here for all revved up. They're next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan. In a couple of minutes, we're going to play an interview we taped late last week with uh, the reverends. But that was before Providence Bishop Thomas Tobin disgraced himself with the following tweet. Quote, a reminder the Catholics should not support or attend LGBTQ Pride Month events held in June. They promote a culture and encourage activities that are contrary to Catholic faith and morals that are especially harmful for children. And, you know, Marjorie, even if that wasn't hateful enough, I did a little Googling of Tobin. He used to be in Pittsburgh, which was one of the dioceses covered by that attorney general thing, 300 priests, at least least 1,000 victims. He said, I think it was to the Providence Journal, he was aware of incidents when he was there of sexual abuse when they were reported to the diocese, but he told the Providence Journal, my responsibilities did not include clergy assignments or clergy misconduct, but apparently the behavior of gay and lesbian and transgender people is part of his uh, responsibility. It's a disgrace. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that most Catholics would agree that the clergy has been much more harmful themselves to children <laughs> than they have gone to, through the church. But, you know, but just to put this in context, though, I mean, there's a lot of people, a lot of Catholics say really stupid, disgraceful things, and he's one of them. I thought it was interesting that the uh, gay and lesbian protest about pride was outside a cathedral. There are more protesters outside than there were inside the cathedral. But but it's it's not that different from other religions. We have really hateful evangelicals. We have really wonderful evangelicals. We have very, very conservative groups, and and that's what he is. This is a, he's a ridiculously, disgracefully conservative Catholic, and and there are a lot of others that are much more liberal. So I brought this up because he's in our community. He's not in Alabama. He's in Providence. That's, to me, why it struck. Well, there are a lot of hateful Catholics right here in Boston. I mean, we have the Catholic League right here in Boston that that says some very hateful things all the time, too. So I'm glad to see a pushback. I'm glad to see this Peroni, the reverend down there, Edward Peroni, who pushed oh, yeah. back say? and said he begged gays and lesbians. He said, I'll beg, the, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I'll beg them on my hands and knees not to leave the church. Uh, you know, we want you to stay. It's uh, Governor Ramondo's Mar- uh, church. She was she there. Was there yeah. She heard him. She was very grateful she did. He got a huge ovation yeah, from great. the parishioners in there who obviously don't think the way this rather disgraceful Bishop Tobin does. Of course, uh, Peroni quipped at the end of the Mass after he gave this rounding uh, rebuke to the bishop, he said, well, you like the new pastor next week. <laughs> that's a pretty good line. <laughs> I mean, By the way, that's in the Globe, which uh, is now covering Providence much more, which is great. So coming up, Reverend Irene Monroe. She's a syndicated religion columnist in Boston Voice for Detours, African-American Heritage Trail, and Emmett Price, professor of worship, church, and culture, founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. So let's start with... Um, uh, reparations. Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a great piece a few years back in The Atlantic about this, which um, brought a lot of facts to my attention that I was unaware of. It was a pretty convincing piece. So uh, make the case if you want to make the case for reparations, but the secondary problem is, do we be talking about this in an election year? makes me nervous. Well, can I answer that one first? <laughs> Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and Corey yeah. Booker are yeah. talking about it. So I, I don't think there's I much know. of a right, choice. But, Ber- right. but, but Bernie Sanders is definitely thumbs down yeah, about it. Right. So, so he's, not, he's, not, uh, he's not feigning to just get votes. But the case has been made. Many years ago, the case has been made. There have been reparations, not only across the world, but even in the United States to different populations of ethnic people. So the case has been made. So the issue is, how come everybody hasn't gotten theirs, right? Right. And and, and, and particularly, why is it that black folks and descendants of African slaves displaced stolen bodies 
have not gotten theirs. That's the issue. And that's what the embedded, inherent racist ideologies of, of, of the nation, you know, reveal. And I think right. that's what Cory Booker and Kamala and, Harris. And, and the Oprah. thing is, and, and they like to complicate the issue because the, the argument will always be then, well, how how might we distribute this amount of money? So there's a lot of good yeah. ideas. Oh, actually. Ab- absolutely. So what what in, in, in 2014 dollars, what is owed to descendants of slaves? Uh, again, 2014 dollars is six point five trillion uh, trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. Well, that'll be happening probably uh, by the end yeah. of the campaign. <laughs> but, but, abso- but, you know, absolutely. absolutely. I, I, it, what bothers me here is that I that they throw this around as a carrot. There, there really will be no serious movement in that direction. This is a conversation that has gone on since the 1970s. And it's always interesting the times in which this, this story comes up. But there has been some reparations. There have been two that we know of today, one of which was 1997. This is when Bill, um, I was going to say Bill Cosby, but Bill Clinton <laughs> Clinton. Not oh, Bill Cosby. Oh Lord, no! <laughs> but when ben, uh, Bill Clinton apologized for uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, for uh, what it was was is that he apologized for slavery and he had the U.S. government pay ten million dollars to survivors of the Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiment. Right. We remember that. The other one was in 1994, when in 1927 there was the Rosewood. Uh, massacre, if you remember, in Florida. Now, the one that is still up in the air, and to me, it's a very clear case, similarly to the Tuskegee study, as well as the money that was given to Rosewood uh, survivors, is definitely Black Wall Street. That is Tulsa, Oklahoma. That was a massacre in 1921. Why are you leaving out uh, Japanese internment? Which well, I no, would no, no, we're not. And the is Holocaust. the best example. Well, yeah, but I'm just saying in terms of black people, oh, black I'm people. sort, of, sort know, of following his thought. But can I tell you, my sense about this, and actually since Elizabeth Warren mentioned this, I think it was at a town hall on CNN or something, wherever I heard her say it, I, I looked in some polling, and not surprisingly, a significant majority of African Americans support it. Almost every, 81 to 85% of whites don't. And I think the reason for it is this is when you look back, Norman Mineta was with us uh, a few days ago, the first uh, Asian-American on the uh, to hold a cabinet position. He actually held two, first Asian-American other than, I think, in Hawaii to be elected to Congress. He was interned uh, in these concentration camps with his parents when he was, a little, he was a little kid living in California. And I think the difference is, uh, and I haven't done a huge amount of research, but I've done a little bit of thinking, is Japanese-American internment happened either in our lifetimes or the lifetime of our parents. So it doesn't seem so remote. What you hear, and I'm sure you've heard it much more than I, and I would argue from some not malevolent whites, is I don't, I didn't have any slaves. My parents didn't have it. My grandparents didn't have any slaves. How, what's your argument when you hear someone say, yeah. this was hundreds of years ago. I condemn that, but I had nothing to do with it. What do if, you say, Emma? If we taught our history correctly, That's we would right. know that at the end, as the Civil War was, uh, was coming to an end in 1865, General William T. Sherman made a promise, 40 acres and a mule. And a mule, yep. And he, he was he was we aiming to redistribute the, 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 <laughs> the Atlantic coastline. President Abraham Lincoln and the Congress at the time approved it. And forty thousand freed persons in the South had started receiving their uh, property, had started planting, and within months of Lincoln's assassination, 
President Johnson. Oh, Andrew Johnson. Rescinded. Andrew, right, yeah, right, right, right. So, think, so if we yeah. if we learned our history right, but it's we, also. But it's your, also, your point is the commitment was already. It was made. already made. Yeah. That's right. Right. I, I think and there wouldn't have been. I just want to say there wouldn't been be the problem about distribution now because they were alive. Because one of the arguments too would be that well, that's a very good that, point. That, that when you talk yeah. about the Japanese survivors of the internment camp, as as well as some of the survivors of the Rosewood massacre, uh, as well as Tuskegee study, is that well the victims are still alive. Mm-hmm. So if they had not truncated a oh. promise, this would have happened. But I just need to say that systemically, I understand when I hear the complaint when whites will say, well, I had nothing to do with it. But when you talk about that this is systemic, and how is that systemic? It's systemic because of the black-white what, you know, wage gap, denial of capital access, inadequate public services. You know, all of those things pay up. We call it the black tax, which we define as basically the cost of doing business in America while being African-American. Well, I think there's a massive amount of ignorance. I am always stunned by everything I don't know as someone who studied American studies in college <laughs> about the history of African-Americans. Well, it, it, America, well, it, I mean, it, it, really this, I told you, I read this Warmth of Other Sons, the stuff I learned there, I, I, left, I left my jaw on the floor. And not to mention all the Jim Crow and the and the and these fraudulent loans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I mean, the case is obvious that African Americans have gotten screwed. I worry, though, that do we have to – I don't know. I'm worried about because of the wide gap between how African-Americans feel about this and how white Americans feel about this, that this is – if we think that Medicare for all is driving people right, over the but, edge, but, I worry about it in the But election. you know what, Mar- Marjorie, two things. I, I appreciate your candor saying – it's really showing an understanding because you went to one of the top universities in this country. And it really goes to see the kind of dominance in terms of how we teach American history because you would think that you're coming at a time that we're introducing producing different uh, disciplines, certainly African-American studies, Hispanic studies, yeah. and still the dominance of white supremacy, even in our in our curriculum. But one of the things that I, I, I want to say here is that you never expect a thief to give you back your property. And one of the things is, is that the, the, the resistance about, you know, reparations will not only is the issue about, about distribution, how do we do this, but it's the way they spin it, because it's the whole thing is that I don't want a handout. They see it as welfare. They see that you don't deserve it. So I think when you spin it that you don't deserve it, that's a, again, you'll get a number of people you know, that back up that, that false premise. You know, the, a related story talking about blowing away my uh, misconceptions all the, uh, as well, the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, which I've never quoted before as far as I know, just did a study about the, the wealth gap between African Americans mm-hmm. and whites. And the most dramatic example, I would argue, in the country is the one we all learned about from just, whatever just, it's yeah. called, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, and then ultimately was in the Globe Spotlight series in Boston. Was it 250000 for the average white family in and terms $8. of wealth and $8 or, or whatever? And while the national margin is not that big, uh, they talk about – the Federal Reserve allegedly demonstrated it's not what most people, I think, like me think – is inheritance, for example, right. is a huge part of this because it perpetuates right. the wealth disparities. They conclude unequivocally that it's the income gap, That's that correct. the average white family in America making 60-plus grand, the average black family 35 grand. You and that They say that there is a causal connection between that and the, the huge wealth gap. When you said absolutely, meaning you 
assumed that was or knew that was the case prior to the Federal Reserve Bank? Uh, yeah, because Emma? well, we, we live we, the we reality. Live we live yeah, the reality. We live it. You know, our 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 population of folks don't get access to the best schools. We don't. We're not able to buy homes. We're not able to you know get the best health care. You know, we're we're not able to have access to the things that that white American, particularly middle class you know, mainstream white Americans have. And so the result of that is that we don't, we're not able to build wealth. We're not, we're, right. we're, we're always one paycheck. And, and I think there are a lot of white, uh, 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 wholesome Americans who are, who are in the same situation, but they have access to loans. They have That's banks right. that will actually give them monies and you get, you, you right. get opportunities to have, you know, bailouts if you yeah. want. See, one of the things people don't understand here is that it costs, it costs African Americans $10 million uh, to just just to li- uh, in terms of discri- well, let me say it this way: the discrimination costs us ten ten million dollars per year to just survive uh, through a system that just doesn't open any doors here. So one of the things that we we deal with, even in our African American communities, you don't have developers, we don't have black banks, we have predatory you know lenders. Okay. So what and and what happens with that is that it further bankrupts our our sort of reserves. You know what, what I was thinking about in terms of the reparations thing that might make it more palatable to people that think, oh, my God, I, you know, I, 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 what, where's mine? How come somebody else getting theirs? As fair and just as it may be, if it were, as the story suggests, talking about instead of like cash to people, vouchers for schools, uh, vouchers for medical insurance, vouchers for colleges, trust funds to finance businesses and homes to say, OK, we're going to throw all this money into a big pot to to solve some of those problems. No, but you, you know why, though? You, you, well, you can't make an unfair situation fair. That's right. Right? And so right. so in many ways, it, it, it's always, as I said before about Black Lives Matter, black lives will never matter until they matter to white lives. And if white lives are always lamenting what we're going to lose out on if we and, give right. them this, then there's no equality. And they're there's not no giving, and, yeah. they're, and they're not giving us anything. So what 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 the problem is is that when you do that too, they will see that as a form of discrimination. See, see what we got to really understand is that they have really taken our income pool, meaning our black bodies, to build to build this right. country. But you got to see how this is politically very hard to sell, especially when you're talking about people being taxed who just got here from Nicaragua or El Salvador or something like that, having to pay higher taxes. I mean, it's a tough political sell. It's a, and but that's how, what I'm but saying. how is it a, a tough political sell when we have been here building this country and not on free labor? What, what about that makes that unfair? Because I think there's a lot of very terribly poor people in America that just got here that are going to find this hard, or even people that just are racist. I mean, mm-hmm. But they were able to come here because we built this country. I think it's a lot. I don't think you're talking about different. I think it's yeah. a lack of public education. I don't yeah. mean public yeah. school education. Yeah, but it's a lack of education yeah. about what history is as you described. But, you know, can I get return to this income gap thing for a minute in terms of something that's achievable? In this Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland thing, making the point that it's income disparity, racial income disparities that lead to racial wealth disparities, not other things. They say if black and white incomes have been similar starting in just 1962, mm-hmm. this That's is right. according to their model there, right. the black and white wealth gap would have all but disappeared by 2007, meaning only 45 years yeah. of equal wages, yeah. which I assume nobody listening to the show, forget the, dis- the disagreement over reparations. I assume there are very few people in this country who are not racist who suggest that there should be a, a, a racial income gap. Right. Assuming that there aren't those, if we'd done it for only 45 years, 
years. Again, right. according to the Federal right. Reserve, we would not be talking but about you, 250 grand to $8 in right, Boston. Right, but that looks idealistic, too, because, again, in order to have sort of income parity, you have to have sort of opportunities in terms of to be at those jobs and get those sort of incomes. I'll give you a classic example here. When we look at, when we're talking about opportunities to build wealth, we, we, we want to talk about a few black businesses. So let's, let's look at our neighborhood. Jim. Main drag in Cambridge. We're talking about Inman Square, Cambridge. That's right. Nary a black business, although there are businesses that are just blossoming in, in the area, as well as the main drag, which is, Ma- which is Mass Avenue in Cambridge. Wait a minute. Ho- you mean holier than thou Cambridge, which <laughs> that's is right. everybody that's right. else? That's right. How People's... to live is not walking the walk? Is that's that right. Me, People's I mean? Republic of Cambridge. Jim. Absolutely. Was, no, it was all downhill would, after yeah. Arizona okay. City Council. I think it started in 2001. Wow. See, and I, at least I, could, I can point to that. That reminds me of Harvard Square when everybody tells right. everybody else how to live. And right. then they're going to put oh. the school with the black kids in that's Harvard right. Square and that's suddenly right. the you-know-what right. hits right. the fan. Well, you know who <laughs> was are the, you kidding by me? By the way, you know who was but, on the wrong side of that issue? A legendary right. civil rights fighter, that's by right. the way, Larry that's Tribe. Right. Yeah. That's right. correct. And then, it then a, traffic. And then another, traffic. then another classic example. This is when we talk about uh, wealth building. The seaport. Yeah. The seaport. None. There are no businesses. So the point about it is that what you have... Marijuana businesses. Okay. We've been talking about this well, nonstop. I was going to get there to that too. There was a social equity right. thing, zero. Right. So the point is, is that you got to have opportunities here. But in order to reach that, to reach that that rung, you you got to allow the door to open towards us. You know, speaking of door, and I would argue doors opening. Everybody has heard Robert Smith say, "I'm paying off all your loans" about ten thousand yeah. times. Very few people have heard this part of his speech at Morehouse. Here's Smith talking about being community-made rather than self-made. Richest black man in America, by the way, in his commencement speech at Morehouse yeah, College. And not Oprah. And not Here Oprah. <laughs> Earning a college degree is one of the most impressive and greatest accomplishments of life. But success has many parents. And as hard as each of you have worked and have achieved today, you've had a lot of help along the way. We are all the product of a community, a village, a team. By the way, his speech was, I think it was called something like Bus Number 13, which is a bus he took as a kid to go to a better school, which was, and obviously he's talking about bus, and he goes on to say in other speeches or writings or whatever, is we've all had many buses in our lives, and he means literal and figurative buses. It's actually a really beautiful concept. Uh, but you know, he took one that, that actually allowed him to excel. See, I took a bus too out of my neighborhood and that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. So I mean, he, he was actually lucky to do so. But what I liked about his speech is that it gets, a, it gets away from that notion of Horatio Alger, that I just pulled myself up from the bootstrap. But also his 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 um, commencement speech is so grounded in the ethos of black uplift because the whole idea that it takes a village he was talking about that that's that's the hot notion and that whole thing about you stand on one shoulder and the whole notion of paying forward so it was a beautiful moment well, but i do have some criticism well before before, <laughs> before you criticize my fraternity brother before you criticize and let me let me just say a couple of things because here's somebody who was public educated public public school educated who tells the story of his mother taking him to the March on Washington to hear Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as an infant. And he goes uh, to MIT and, you know, becomes a chemical engineer and then an investment banker. 
and and takes the as 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 the folks in the old church say takes the rough side of the mountain up. Mm -hmm. I mean, he 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 wasn't given handouts and he didn't have privilege and whatnot, um, but rose to great acclaim to show so many folks that it is possible. Yeah, well, it's possible if the bus is going to a school that educates you, because like like this brother, I too went to MLK, you know, March on Washington, because the churches went down there. I too, you know, went to Wellesley, Columbia, Harvard, all of that. And you're rather but, successful too. But the point is. Is All that right. it was predicated? Okay, Emmett, <laughs> see, he's messing with me, but it's predicated more on luck. And this is what I wanted to talk about in terms of it talks about while it's wonderful that he's offered that, and who's going to look, you know, a gift horse in the mouth? I wish I was the beneficiary, but it's a, more predicated on luck than about a system that is in place that helps children that if they do take out loans are not saddled with this all their lives. I do think that when you're talking about philanthropy, it reminds me of Oprah in 2007. You got a car. Okay, well, <laughs> well, she opened up this academy in South Africa. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. for a hundred and a hundred, just for a hundred and seventy, fifty? What is it? Fifty-seven young girls. It was wonderful. Fifty million, what? Forty million dollars. And I just felt like, well, that's wonderful. Would have been wonderful to make have forty schools for a million each that could have been spread all across South Africa. But I do think that when you have, when you depend on the philanthropy of billionaires, it makes a lazy government to serve all the people. Can I tell you, I, I could not agree more with every single word. That's the only, by the way, I don't fault Robert Smith Or his largesse, I love uh, it. But I, I fault those of us who look at that and sort of praise it without stepping back and saying what you say. The best corporate or wealthy person philanthropy can never replace That's what right. is the function of government at its best. I no, couldn't agree. government has done a hell of a job or, or in good, inner city schools. Or That's good, all I have to or, say. The government has really I'm, stepped I'm, up. Well, let's take the money out of it no, then. Let's right. take the yeah. money out <laughs> and let Robert Smith just fund them. Well, I mean, yeah. right. Thank think, you. But I think while we challenge the government to be better for everybody, Somebody has to come up with a stimulus plan, and for all of these young but men, that's not a for all of these plan. for all of these young men graduating debt free from Morehouse, <laughs> there's a small corrective that if they take the spirit of Robert Smith and expand that and pay it forward, you 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 have hope. No, for, it for sets up it sets up this notion hope. of luck and chosen. Now, I I I love Morehouse. It's the jewel of of black academia and particularly black leadership. We get Spike Lee, we get Samuel Jackson, and of course we got Martin. Luther the king, but if, it, but my point about it is that it is, is we're not talking about either educational equity or economic, you know, parity here. The point is is that the class of 2019, j just out of luck, got this guy as the commencement speaker, and this is his largesse to the class of 2019. There, there will be classes following that that will be, you know, debt, you know, to, up to kazoo in terms of having to pay loans. It, to me, speaks even more resoundingly to a failed educational and loan system. So vote for a candidate who talks about free Th higher absolutely. education, too. That's right. I mean, that's, that's right. You know, we only have a couple of minutes left, but in light of the fact that, that Marjorie is proven right by this incredible poll about Catholics and Donald Trump, oh. you have been, I mean, every time we have an abortion discussion, which is as infrequently as possible uh, on this show, uh, you say, you know, Catholics have, and I'm putting words in your mouth, things that matter a lot to Catholics, uh, 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 much more than abortion is evidenced by the polls, where the vast majority of Catholics support some level of choice, right. are poor people and immigrants. And this poll that comes out that shows that, that Donald Trump, who... Uh, beat Hillary Clinton 50 of 46 among Catholics, now 
trails Catholics 55 to 44. And the article goes on to say no president in modern times has won without a majority of the Catholic vote. The reason he's losing it is because of those very policies you've been talking about. Yeah, well, they've been talking about immigration nonstop Mm -hmm. um, in, in, in the church, unlike the white evangelicals that should be ashamed of them. By the way, even but, criminals but, like Bernie Law, I mean, the worst of criminals in my estimation. Mm-hmm. I remember days when I was a lobbyist at the State House when he would come up and nobody would be more eloquent about poor people and immigrants' rights and That's benefits than this man who know, turned well, out so to be a... The Pope has. Mass- yeah, but I kind of I poo-pooed this, this poll because I thought it was terribly skewed for a couple of reasons. Is that the, the Catholics that are interested in, in you know, immigration and, and these various other issues are mostly, you know, brown and 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 black, you know, Catholics for the most part. Um, How do you know but that? But there were brown, but, black Catholics but, okay, in 2016 okay, but, and 2012. But, but, I, but I want to say, and 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 many of them from a RN a RNS poll also states that these were Catholics anyway that would vote Democratic. So we're not talking about Catholics that are. But they were included leaving. in the same Hillary Clinton uh, Donald Trump poll in, in 2016, where he beat. Fifty. There were black and brown Catholics in that poll too, and he still beat her. I still think you. I, I, I find that to be a very small pool here. You I, have I, Barna, you have Gallup, and now you have Monroe. That's right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Amen. Beautiful. Well, I, I mean, since they always trash him, I'll give him a lot of credit. They hammer, hammer, hammer on immigration, immigration, helping the immigration, standing up for immigration, standing up for the poor, sending money to the poor. And uh, well, Catholic, I think Catholic I, Charities is I, uh, the biggest non-government listen, agency in the I world. Think, I, think, I think that's a nice lens, at, you know, for to give the Catholic Church, considering I just read James uh, uh, Connors' uh, article in The Atlantic saying that uh, we need to get rid of the priesthood. So Yeah, I read, yeah. That, I read that, too. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to help. I love him. I, I love him. I give him a check. <laughs> well, he's, he's despondent. He's an ex-priest. Um, anyway, thank you very much, good you guys, for coming in. Reverend Zion Monroe and Emmett G. Price join us every week for All Revved Up. Emmett is a professor and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Irene is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston voice for Detour's African-American Heritage Trail, a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at Boston University School of Theology. Coming up... Our TV man, Bob Thompson, joins us for his take on the best and worst TV of the week. He is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie Egan. One of the most controversial Super Bowl ads was Gillette's takedown of toxic masculinity. Now, they've released a new ad that furthers the conversation about gender with the story of the transgender male Samson and his first shave. I went into my transition just wanting to be happy. I'm glad I'm at the point where I'm able to shave. 
Now, don't be scared. Don't be scared. Shaving is about being confident. Oh, you do, you're doing fine. You are doing fine. I'm at the point in my manhood where I'm actually happy. It's not just myself transitioning, it's everybody around me transitioning. So is the ad cutting edge or is it cutting at too close as cynical corporate wokeness? Joining us for his take on this and other TV developments is Bob Thompson, Bob's professor and founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. Hello, Bob Thompson. Hello, and of course it's cutting edge. It's a Gillette ad. <laughs> but um, I'm bummed. And, and the whole point is it's not supposed to be cutting it too close. It's supposed to be cutting it just right. I don't know. This has only been out for a bit, and uh, I've yet to fully form my uh, uh, analysis of it. But first we should say it is a beautifully shot little ad. Mm-hmm. It's, it's moving. If you simply uh, watch it uh, uh, and let yourself respond to it, it it's, a, it's a very touching. reminds me some of the best ads that uh, uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints used to do and that Hallmark uh, uh, used to do, too tear-jerking and emotional before they pop up the logo. It is, however, in the end, the popping up of that logo that always makes me a little nervous. We saw this at uh, 9-11, even uh, uh, a week, less than a week after um, September 11th when the ads came back. You'd see all these pictures of firemen and all this kind of thing, and then a subway logo, logo would pop up. I don't know how we should interpret that. I don't know how we should feel about how these companies do want to announce how diverse they are and how, as you pointed out, how woke they are. Um, And I don't know that this is the way that they should be selling razors, but it is an awfully touching little uh, mini film. I thought it was totally beautiful. And while I will always opt for the cynical, I guess the difference is between the two you mentioned, I would argue, is that post 9-11, showing a firefighter or first responder, about 99% of America would nod their heads, uh, you know, right on. Uh, Doing a thing about a transgender young man is probably not going to please the bulk of uh, uh, Gillette's audience. It's a much more risk-taking proposition, I think, for them. So I'm willing to give them on this one. More than the benefit of the doubt, I guess. Yes, I think that is that is a really good point and a good distinction to uh, to make. And also, the in a very short uh, film, this healthy relationship yeah. between a father. Uh, uh, and his child, and the complete acceptance of that father uh, for his uh, 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 child's what he's going through and his this kind of growing up and all the rest of it. Uh, it it really is again. I will say it's a beautiful film to watch, and it doesn't take long to watch. It puts a lot of stuff uh, in a in a short uh, period. And you know, if these kinds of films can get made because they have to advertise a razor. I can think of worse things. (laughs) Well, you know what else? I mean, it's occurred to me, and there's a certain irony, I guess, there, that the capitalist instincts may be a very good, uh, or just to make more money, may be very effective in this time when we're having politicians, you know, talking about not only taking away abortion rights, but taking away birth control, these ridiculous uh, uh, right-wing surges. Look what happened down in uh, Georgia with Netflix and Disney. So I, I like it in a way that, that corporations, because they want the young uh, customers, because they know that uh, this is the way America is heading. I, I like the fact that, that that some of them are leading the way because 
um, certainly politicians aren't in these days. Yeah, that, that's we could have a, uh, a about a year long conversation. <laughs> but yes, the idea of benevolent capitalism. This yeah. goes back to uh, Plato yeah. and stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, but you're right. Sometimes really good things come out of the ultimate desire to sell toothpaste or to sell uh, soda or whatever. Uh, And there are a lot of examples of that, and I think this is probably one of them. What's your best of the week, Bob? Well, this is a nostalgic, sentimental best, uh, but Deadwood finally got to have its conclusion after 13 years. Uh, (laughs) This, of course, was this uh, uh, HBO show uh, that debuted back in 04. And for perspective, let's remember that Sopranos debuts in 99, The Wire in uh, uh, 02, but Mad Men not till 07, uh, Breaking Bad not till 08. So uh, Deadwood was one of the early manifestations of this uh, explosion of uh, television quality. And David Milch, for all of his issues, uh, um, is one of the few people I have ever met that I really got the sense that uh, I was in the presence of a genius. Remember, I've never met you two guys. We've only <laughs> talked over the phone. Absolutely. Um, so, but uh, uh, he, of course, had uh, done. He, well, he'd been a uh, uh, teacher at Yale University. He taught writing there. He wrote that. for Hill Street Blues. He did NYPD Blue. But the thirty-six episodes of uh, Deadwood that he did back in from 04 to 06 was some of the most exquisitely written, laced with vulgarity, but exquisite uh, vulgarity. And violence. And I think that, and violence, uh, pigs eating people, as he once described it, uh, literally pigs. Um, But this last uh, uh, two-hour episode, I think he soared to his most Shakespearean, and it really sounds, this is not English. This is, well, it is English. It's Elizabethan English. Um, uh, Anyway, I thought it was a wonderful tying up of a show that ejected early and that never had any kind of closure, and now it does. Well, here's a little clip from the Deadwood movie where the saloon owner reacts to a speech from Senator Hurst. None will deny the facts and the cost of a past. We who gather have known together some portion of which must still be measured in blood. Yet the Deadwood community does enter its adulthood. And don't our spirits raise, you murdering, conniving, thieving You know, Bob, I always wondered, uh, why did this end as abruptly as it did? As you, I think you said only three years of such well, a masterpiece. It was, a, it, it was complicated. Uh, David Milch wanted to go on and do a pet project called uh, John from Cincinnati, which only lasted a season on HBO. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a number of issues of contracts uh, uh, running up. And David Milch was, let's just call say, a notional producer. Um, so there were a, a lot of reasons, and then once it happened, it looked like it was never going to have this closure, although everybody talked about it. But whoever chose that clip, as usual, the people who choose your clips are so brilliant. That even in that brief bit, you heard that uh, uh, those who gather have known together. I mean, that beautiful gather and gather, it's so poetic, it's so Shakespearean. And the idea of having people talk that way in the turn of the century, turn of the other century, uh, West. Um, I, I think it's, it's uh, now some, all told, 37 episodes of the best Western ever wow. made. Wow. 
Okay. Uh, so but what again, you're... as I usually say with HBO, don't watch it with the kids because uh, yeah, I, I was never allowed to use bad language as a kid. I never acquired it. But after watching Deadwood, I always found myself slipping these words into my language. So what's your worst, Bob? Okay, this was uh, uh, last week or two weeks ago, but we didn't talk for Memorial Day. Remember when the What to Watch was the All in the Family Jefferson's sure. Live? Yeah, yeah with a great Which cast. I think for the most part had some great moments. Jennifer Hudson singing the Jefferson uh, theme song. She totally uh, 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 nailed that. Um, uh, Wanda Sykes as uh, 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 Louise Jefferson was wonderful. But I'm going to have to give my worst to Woody Harrelson as Archie Bunker. That was one of the most painful performances I've seen uh, this year. Why? His, he was trying to do Archie's Queen's accent, but oh. he kept falling into what sounded like he may have grown up in New Hampshire. Oh, no. Oh, okay, no. so let's move on to a film. I'm actually dying to see this film on Hulu. The Return of Dr. Ruth. <laughs> oh, yes. Ask Dr. Ruth. Now, I have to say I have been a big admirer of Dr. Me Ruth. Too. I first encountered uh, her way back in the 80s. I was in graduate school in the early uh, 1980s. Um, and it's hard to remember back then because now we've got all this mm-hmm. cable and internet where we can, I mean, sexuality is so everywhere. But back then, there was not a lot of talk in the mass media about this. And she got away with it because she had this elfin grandmotherly, uh, and of course she had her German dialect, and uh, you could never listen to her for more than five minutes before she'd managed to say the words ejaculation or <laughs> orgasm or masturbation. Uh, and, and, of course, she always did it with kind of this clever, almost g- giddy, sort of giggling kind of way. But I think she raised an awful lot of consciousness. If I had to say who has done more good for this world, Dr. Wow. Ruth, Yes, lots of it. Dr. Phil maybe has damaged it more than he's done good. I mean, um, she did uh, some really, really uh, interesting stuff in her many different shows and appearances uh, on Late Night. This may be a stretch for some people, but I think in an odd sort of way, Dr. Ruth had an awful lot in common with another person I admire greatly, Mr. Rogers. Oh, my goodness. Oh. She was a Holocaust survivor, was she not? Yes. Not only a Holocaust survivor, she was a, worked in a kind of sniper crew. She's she's got a very complex biography, which is very nicely um, talked about in this, I guess we haven't said it yet, Hulu's uh, released uh, on June 1st called Ask Dr. Ruth. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't know Dr. Ruth, a very uh, good way to get to know her, and if you do, a delightful way to get to know stuff you didn't know already. Okay, so uh, what about this uh, millennial roast deal? What's this about? I think this sounds oh fabulous, God. actually. Okay, historical roast. If, if, if you were to take Comedy Central's Drunk History, which I'm not a big fan of, uh, and marry it with, comedy, uh, uh, with uh, the old um, uh, uh, standard roast that have been going on forever, which I'm also a not big fa- fan of. I don't like the mean-spirited nature of all... But anyway, those two, Drunk History and uh, uh, these roasts, if they had a child, it would be historic roasts. Uh, Netflix did um, six episodes they released on the 27th. Abraham Lincoln, Freddie Mercury, Anne Frank, Martin Luther King, Cleopatra, and Muhammad Ali get roasted by the likes of uh, 
Nelson Mandela, uh, uh, Barack Obama, Rosa Parks, FDR, Hitler, Don Rickles. If it sounds like it could be really offensive, it is. But by the end of the six episodes, it's pretty fascinating. I think it's the concept. I, I love. They're all dead people, right? All the people that are roasted right. are uh, dead. Freddie Mercury, the most recent, most of them, uh, uh, well, Martin Luther King and Frank, but uh, some have been gone for a long time, including Cleopatra. <laughs> a roast of Cleopatra. By the way, it gets roasted by Caesar, Mark Antony, and Isis. No, not oh. the Isis in the news, that oh. other Isis. <laughs> Well, I hope Richard Burton's there too. By the way, oh, and and uh, it's there's so many uh, nice Jaleel White, who we all know as Did I Do That? Urkel mm-hmm. from uh, uh, Family. He does Nelson Mandela, and it's it's beautifully done. That's in the Martin Luther King uh, roast. He also plays uh, uh, Muhammad Ali in a later uh, version, and. Um, Mindy uh, Rickles uh, plays her dad, Don Rickles, in, oh. um, in, in, of all things, the Anne Frank roast. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that should be great. So what are we watching this week, Bob? Well, I know I'm going to be continuing to watch it. Just uh, Netflix uh, did uh, four episodes on the 31st, just a couple of days ago, of When They See Us. Uh, Ava DuVernay, who did, of course, Selma, Wrinkle in Time, 13th on the 13th Amendment. Uh, this is a four-part uh, uh, miniseries on the 1989 Central Park jogger uh, murder in which the five 14- to 16-year-old kids uh, were um, arrested and convicted and Donald Trump got involved and all that rest of it. Uh, I've seen the first two episodes, and it's really beautifully done. By the way, I could only make it through uh, uh, about so far, even though I am going to watch the whole thing, about 40 minutes of the first episode. It is so painful and the racism so intense. Uh, and the, by the way, Felicity Huffman, who has obviously been in the news a lot, plays the evil DA, who's a very famous DA, Linda, Linda Fairstein. Fa- and she writes a lot of mystery novels yeah. now. And I was reading this piece, Bob. Uh, Linda Fairstein is, is portrayed as, as soon as she found out there was a bunch of young African-American uh, young men. Boys, Animals, as she calls yeah, them. She, right, all, she right. decided they were also rapists, mm. even though the evidence was clear that there was just one mm. rapist, which turned out to be the truth. It was, uh, had dragged this poor woman into the uh, bushes and, and attacked her. But um, that uh, Ava DuVernay apparently has given an interview saying that uh, that Fairstein wanted to nego- she wanted to talk to Fairstein. Ava DuVernay did before the movie, and Fairstein tried to negotiate uh, the terms of their discussions. And one of the terms was having supervision over the script to see wow. how she was portrayed. Well, oh, needless to say, Ava DuVernay has portrayed her as. A absolutely horrible person and in terms the way, of the racism, and people are now boycotting her books. If for people who don't know, since I, one of you, either you or Bob, mentioned Donald Trump, this is the one where he took out the full page ad arguing for the death penalty. Right. And even after it became clear and they were released from jail, and this other guy indicted uh, for the crimes and convicted for him, that uh, 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 he He's has refused to apologized. acknowledge that. that uh, it, it wasn't them. Here's a clip from the trailer to DuBernay's uh, film. By the way, it's called When They See Us. The female jogger was severely beaten and raped. Every black male who was in the park last night is a suspect. I need all of them. What's going on with my son? Your son was involved in rape in Central Park. What? No, 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 They saw you rape the lady. I didn't see a lady or hit anyone. I didn't see any lady. Kevin. I didn't see any lady. I want to see my son right now, right now. 
said I did. I didn't. You know, years ago, when I think her name was Trisha Maley, the woman who was raped, uh, outed yeah, herself and wrote a her. book. I interviewed her on New England Cable News, and I have to say, she was one of the bravest, most together on the surface people I'd ever. Her book's called "I Was the Central Park uh, uh, Jogger," and it, it, she was just. She was, um, you know, when we were talking about this. And she upst- didn't remember what happened. No, nothing. Nothing. When I was up, we were upstairs talking about this this morning. I am totally embarrassed to say uh, we were talking to Chelsea, and I, I'm not embarrassed about that, that I'd totally <laughs> forgotten that Ken Burns had done a thing with, uh, uh, with uh, his daughter on the Central Park Five in 2012. Did you, ever, did you see that? Bob, when it came out? I did, although I have not in a long time, so I'm not uh, up enough to uh, uh, to make this connection. But the Fel- the Felicity Huffman thing, and this is not the appropriate time to talk about this. But oh, why not? Uh, go ahead. But I-, I think this is going to be because this is an important, good, prod- consciousness raising raising project. This one we've been talking about mm-hmm. uh, uh, when they see us. I think Felicity Huffman's participation in it, her presence, is going to be good for her uh, career. Me too. I think you're right. Me too. It trumps the ridiculous – well, I shouldn't say that. It, it it overcomes so much of the other kind of thing. And even though she's playing a far from uh, uh, sympathetic yeah. character, I, I think in the end this is going to be good for her return to acting or whatever she has to return yeah, What do you think it's going to do for Fairstein's career? I don't think it's going to be good for her. That's a whole other story. (laughs) You know, by the way, when you said this is what to watch, and I couldn't agree, it's really important. And again, as painful as it is, I get the sense so far, it's important for a bit to watch and really high quality. Big Little Lies Part 2 starts this week, too, does it not, with the addition of uh, Meryl Streep, right? Well, there was so much good stuff this week that I decided we'll talk about Big Little Lies after it's done. So uh, uh, we'll get to that soon enough. And also, I don't know uh, when we're going to talk about the Washington Post binge-watching will kill you. Well, actually, as soon as we say goodbye to you, we're going to ask our listeners. And we were reading this morning uh, the following, that uh, binge-watching, which, as you know, I love and Marjorie does not, uh, they say it has some minor consequences. Uh, increases your risk of heart disease, stroke, <laughs> type two diabetes, blood clots, fatigue, insomnia. I mean, okay, well, here's my quick thing. If please, you've got a second before do. you go on, we do. This is not binge watching. This causes this. It's sitting around for seven hours and not moving. That's what causes it. Uh, and by the way, that could be true of sitting around reading the great books of the Western world for seven hours uh, uh, without moving. Most of the things they talk about uh, uh, is not the act of binge watching itself. Uh, it's the act of sitting around, and then the other habits that you do when you sit around, which is you tend to eat foods that you can reach from where you're sitting. Uh, kind of thing. Also, the social part. You don't go out. You don't see regular people. All that's bad, but that isn't binge-watching. That's the whole act of anything that does that. That's my take on that. There's one thing that comes out of those studies, though, that I I think needs to be looked at. Digital eye strain. That is something that could be unique to binge-watching. I think eye strain is true of reading as well um, uh, and other things we may do, but I think the idea of staring at screens could actually be something that has issues that are unique to the idea of binge-watching, not simply unique to the idea of sitting around for seven hours at a time. Dr. Thompson, thank you very much for your analysis. We appreciate it. I also want to add, our our crack staff has pointed out that uh, Linda Fairstein, the prosecutor here, was uh, uh, once consulted for Harvey Weinstein. I was just looking up some of the stories that she was trying to help him out. 
Hey, Bob, uh, great talking to you as always. Talk to you next week. Look forward to it. Thanks. Thank you very much, Bob Thompson. Bob Thompson joins us every week. He's the founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Up next, a new study, as we just talked about with Bob Thompson, says binge watching is bad for your health because you're going to sit around watching and eating Cheetos all night long. So is it time to go on a TV diet? That is next on 89.7 hey, WGBH. Hey, you got to stroke out, you got to stroke out. That's the way it goes. Thank you, Jim. Uh, that is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Marjorie Egan. Uh, to binge or not to binge? We just mentioned that. That is the question that now apparently has an answer. According to a cluster of studies, binge watching is affecting our hearts, our sleep, our social skills. It's eating into our exercise time, such as it is. And it's compelling us to just binge, not just binge on TV, but on food as well. So we're opening the lines and asking you, are you susceptible to binge viewing, or actually, I should put it another way: Do you love binge viewing as I do? What ropes you in, or have you figured out how to watch all things in moderation? Do you have to go cold turkey, or are you granting yourself this excess? You know, it just occurred to me as I'm uh, listing mm-hmm. these questions. This is analogous to the first discussion we had with our listeners at noon. There, we were saying flying has been calculated to be very damaging to the environment. Are you willing to rein that in? Binge-watching has been found to be very damaging to yourself. Are you willing to rein that in? So both of our discussions today with listeners, I guess, are about self-control just for different causes. 877-301-8970. I love binge-viewing. And as I've said to you, on HBO, for example, if a series is new and they only release one a week or whatever the schedule is, I wait at least halfway into the season so I can watch three or four of them at the same time. You don't like binge viewing, so this is not even relevant to your experience. Is that correct or not? No, because the, the one time I really did it was uh, watching Broadchurch over Thanksgiving. Oh, that's great. And one of the best ever. I was up to like 4 o'clock in the morning. So what was the problem with that? <laughs> Sleep light. What is wrong is that with that? Like I was going to well, say they, on a school night, on a work night? Uh, no, it was over Thanksgiving vacation. So what's the big deal? Well, because you get kind of roped in, and before you know it, you've watched like eight shows, and you think, why did I do this? And now I learn it's terrible for you. There's all these instructions of what you're supposed to do, Jim. What do you say? First Wait. of all, what do you get? What are the diseases or, or ailments? You get a lot of diseases, like apparently. Well, you get cardiovascular system problems. Okay. Your vision will be hurt. Your socialization is going to be ruined because you're not you're doing it mostly ruined. by Go yourself. Uh, and your sleep patterns will all be totally screwed up. And if you, have, if you don't sleep right, then there's a lot of other problems, as you know. And increases the likelihood of being obese having a stroke. Yes, that's right. Well, because you're going to eat all these terrible things. Listen to this. Yeah. Uh, in 2018, researchers found that prolonged sitting for binge watching is like a sedentary behavior for long haul flights or illness. Increase your risk of developing deep vein thrombosis. thrombosis? Like a flying on a plane? In the leg. Yes, that's right. Wow. And um, and you're not supposed to, you, you're not supposed to sit for a long time. So what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take 30-minute breaks. You're supposed to take regular stretch breaks, move around every 30 minutes, or watch while standing for at least part of your mm. binging. Take a break in the middle, do something daring like go finish the laundry or or, or sort the laundry mm-hmm. or bake something, walk the dog, or go to the bathroom. And after your binge is over, Jim, you're supposed to walk or jog. Well, so <laughs> I, I generally... No, actually, I mean, you're laughing. I usually... I try to run two miles in between each hour... Yeah. Of binge viewing. Yeah, and you're but, supposed to pre- prepare binge-acceptable snacks. Can I tell you something? Such I, as vegetables or air-popped 
popcorn. I'm not a science denier, uh-huh. like uh, a particular individual who's now visiting the UK. Yep. But I have to say, part of the joy of binge viewing is being stationary, being in place. You have whatever you want to drink. You have whatever you want to eat. You have whatever materials really? you want around so you. Kind of binge Maybe your computer is open. What? What kind of binge snacking do you do? I generally have a side order of lard. <laughs> I just just melt it down and just. I mean, just normally, you know, guacamole, chips, yep. salsa, You're whatever it is. You're not supposed to watch alone either. You're supposed to take a break after each show. That, see, that's the problem. Is Watching it? by yourself is the fun. Well, you, you, you are, again, you arm yourself with the right food and drinks. You settle in. You have that <laughs> clicker in your hand. You hit go or whatever the thing says, and it's like ecstasy. You know, you have three or four or five hours in a row okay. of something you know you love. How much did you Not love Broad Church? You, was I, re- I Broad recommend Church was Broad really Church. Good. Was it fabulous? It was really good. Well, it was a murder mystery, so you had to wait to the end to figure out who did it. And, and Libby how- Coleman, one of the greatest actresses yes, of all time. Well, she just won the Academy Award she this did. year for her movie about being the Queen Elizabeth or Queen Anne or queen wherever somebody, she was. Yeah. And, or Victoria. Who, which queen I have was no, she? I didn't anyway, see um, uh, the thing is, as everybody knows, that, 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 that the show is, as soon as the show ends, they start that circle on Netflix and the next show begins like it's in two seconds. It's called binge viewing, exactly. Binge viewing. It's really, you have to stop the television set so you even have time to go to the bathroom. I know, exactly. It's really a, a dilemma. And, but again, if the question is having a heart failure or missing out on this kind of excitement, I go for the excitement. It is really one of the most exciting things you can do. It really, really is. You don't have to stay up till 4 o'clock. Well, uh, that's the problem. It is hard, especially if it's a murder mystery, to drag yourself but why would you want to deny that? That's the whole point. Marjorie, if you you often talk about you have a great book, you can't put it down, you read into the wee hours of the evening. Why is this any different? It just as viewing as opposed to reading. What's well, the difference? Because usually if you're reading a book into the wee hours of the morning, you know what happens? No. You fall asleep. Yeah. And that's the other thing. You should you know try, by the way. What's that? This is crazy. Who's going to do this? What's that? That you're not supposed to have any blue lights like from a computer screen for a few hours before bed, but a minimum of one to two hours? Yeah. Who does that anymore? I try to be asleep within three minutes of the last time I've seen Anderson Cooper's face. That's a, <laughs> that's generally my goal. Okay. 877-301-897. The one thing I never, ever, ever do, which they do describe as really harmful to your sleep patterns, is they say there are a lot of people who wake up in the middle of the night, and the way they put themselves back to sleep is to go watch a movie or watch something on their computer. That I do not that I don't. Well, don't you do. listen to the radio? Isn't that your thing? I do listen to the radio. I do, but that's not a viewing There's kind a of thing. A lot of good radio on at three o'clock in the morning. Let me tell you, those all-night talk shows are superb, and the callers are really good. Paul and Worcester, you've been very patient. We're talking about bi- the 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 physically and psychologically damaging aspects of binge viewing. Which side are you on, Paul? Hi. Hi, hi. Uh, um, there's balance in all things. There is. Last week, I exchanged I exchanged exposure to all media to binge watch a couple of shows, and I feel fabulous. What'd you watch? Really? Um, I watched Lucifer. Mm-hmm. New season just came out, Stranger Things, so I can be ready when the new season comes out in a week, and Ozark, because I just felt like it. Ozark's terrific. And, you know, and, 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 you know what I was just reading this morning, when we were talking about Deadwood, the movie with, uh, with uh, Bob Thompson, the beauty is there are only three seasons of Deadwood. So if you want to prepare for the movie, which most people say you got to see the series before to get take full advantage, they're only like 36 or 30. <laughs> so you, you take off a couple of days. Paul, thanks for the call. You know, I, I had missed the first um, uh, few seasons of Veep. I kind of get into that late. Yeah. And everybody's, oh, you got to start from the beginning. And I'm thinking... Okay, what are there, seven seasons, eight seasons? But they're only 30-minute episodes. Am I it's really, great. Am I really going to plow mm-hmm. through seven seasons before I watched it? Absolutely. This? And I didn't, and it was fine. 
You had no idea what the finale was about. How do you know what it led up to? How do you know what it led up to? I watched it? the finale. I know, but you knew nothing about it. We talked about it the next day. You had no idea what was going on. I've talked about it enough that I knew the entire plot. I knew what it was all about. You, you mm. didn't need to watch in the beginning. Oh, yes, you do, That's actually. the point. Stranger Things is the one about the reporter, right? I don't know. There's going to be another season. Did you know. watch Stranger Things? No, I did not. Oh. Let's Donna go to... in Hyde Park. Hi, Hi Donna. Donna. Hi. How you doing, baby? You're Great. <laughs> you sound wonderful on the phone. I just love the both of you. Thank you. Thank and you. I binge, I binge whenever I want to, baby. I bet you do. <laughs> and this is how I get through it. How's that? How? Leg lifts. I, I have water bottles on the right hand and the left hand and yeah. stretch up over my head. Yep. And... Uh, it's good stuff. Why cut it out? Enjoy life. Okay, John, so put. what's your favorite binge-watching show? Anything particularly really got a, got a kick out of? Would you believe this, Star Wars? I love Star Wars. Oh, we I believe it. Watch it in, in, in forever. Donna, it's beautiful good. call and a very positive attitude. That's exactly the right kind of attitude for binge viewing. I am totally with Donna. Donna's she, doing leg lifts. She does. And yes. I actually do I do both jumping jacks and burpees. <laughs> remember burpees when you were a kid? No. You don't remember burpees? I don't think so. I think it was I think it was something like a jumping jack, a push up, and then you'd throw your I don't know what it was. If anybody knows what a burpee is, if you can email us, we'd appreciate it. Donna, thanks so much for calling in. Brendan in Boston. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Brendan. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. A uh, couple quick quick, quick points I want Please. to make. Number one, I've been sick with bronchitis all oh. weekend, and I've been, I've been binge-watching Chernobyl on HBO. It's excellent. My kids lo- think, loves uh, it. Yeah, she loves it. Oh, it's it's really, really good. The suspense and stress of watching that show, I think, is far more dangerous for the audience than just sitting around and watching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, highly recommended viewing. Um, when it comes to health, you know, uh, related challenges of binge watching, I'm sort of indifferent. I mean, you know, you watch an episode, you have a couple chicken wings, do a lap around your house. <laughs> uh, the, the bigger point I want to make, though, is that I don't find it as enjoyable as appointment television. I think Game of Thrones is a good example of this. I'm with you. Sopranos. You know, I was I was a big Sopranos yeah. fan. Yeah. Uh, it was the talk of the town. Everyone was talking about it around the water cooler at work the next day. Everyone wanted to, you know, think it through and had their own theories and ideas as to what would happen in the next episode. And I don't think you pick up as, uh, as much detail when you're binging stuff. Brendan, um, I have to say that's the – I'm so glad you called. It, it, my favorite show of all time is The Sopranos, and it is true – in anticipation of Sunday night, Friday you'd be talking about what's coming up, and Monday everybody was talking about what happened the night before. Yes, that is you, the one downside. And you plan, like, remember, I mean, a lot of people had last episode of the Soprano parties, and I know everybody's really excited about the last episode of Game of Thrones. Now, once again, I hadn't watched much of Game Forget of Thrones. Forget last episodes. How about every episode? I mean, what Brendan's saying is the anticipation of every yeah, week's... Yeah, but particularly the, the yeah. ends. Remember, you know, a million years ago when you were kids, the, the end of the last episode of MASH? Mm-hmm. Everybody watched that, or the last episode Biggest Ever, Seinfeld. I think, one of them, Everybody watched that. So I'm with you, Brendan. Everybody's talking about Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones. But nobody, but both to Brendan and Marjorie, no one is forcing you to watch every single. Well, for example, when Netflix uh, introduces a new series and every episode is up right away. Like, for example, I think the most anticipated thing until Kevin Spacey, who was in Nantucket courtroom today, uh, was in trouble, was House of Cards. When House of Cards, everybody, everybody I know watched the whole thing, usually in 24 or 36 hours, but you're not required to. No, if you, you are not Show a little to. self-discipline, and then you can have the experience that you and Brendan are talking about. Wait till a Sunday night and air it on a Sunday night. Well, you know, you're interesting that you're talking about What's self-discipline that? since you have admitted you exercise absolutely none when it comes to binge watching. That's true. I did. 
I, but I don't choose to. I'm saying, look, for Brendan, thanks for the call. I think the reason people for don't people like you and exercise self-discipline with binge-watching, because it's hard, because yeah. they just r- roll one into the next, and you can just keep watching and keep watching. Liz in the car. Hi, Liz. Hello, Liz. Hi there. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can. All right. So uh, we were actually having a discussion about this on Twitter earlier today among some academic colleagues of mine. Yeah. Um, because a lot of us will binge watch shows we've already seen in the background when we're doing research, when we're collecting data, when we're doing things that don't require, like, attention to detail, but you kind of have to be present, but you need some noise in the background. I like that. Um, so I'll do it during data collection all the time. I, I put on, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or... Criminal Minds or something. Well, let me ask you, Liz, since you've done that, I was thinking of doing something that I can run by you. There are occasional shows that Marjorie and I do that aren't that interesting to me. <laughs> what do you think if I just played The Sopranos in the background while we were doing the show? What do you think of that? Go for it. Okay, I'm going to try that. Liz, thank you for the call. By the way, that is a huge thing. for show. One of the great shows is Occupied. If you watch Occupied... It's like a Norwegian or something is the problem. And so everything is subtitled. So you do have to pay attention. But the vast majority of shows, a la Liz, she's talking about shows you've already seen, you're rewatching. Yeah. But even the vast majority of shows you're watching for the first time, if you don't catch every single nuance, it's perfectly okay. Well, if you're watching you do whatever you're doing. on your computer, you can watch them while you're dental flossing. You can bring your computer into the bathroom. That's a very good point. I've actually. done that. You have really? Yeah. Well, especially if I have to watch a lot of things for for the radio. For work, yeah. Yeah, I'm carrying. I carry the computer around the house. Mm. Makes it easier. How Carl- do you carry the computer and floss? How do you do that at the same time? Well, you put the computer down. Oh, you put it and down. You floss I'm sorry. In front of the computer. Oh, then you pick it up again. That is correct. I see. Okay. Carl in Boston. Hello, Hi, Carl. Carl. Hey, good afternoon, Hi. Jim Audrey. Hi there, Carl. Uh, before I get into hey, before I get into the binge watching, I want to first say, Jim, I yeah. love your wish. Yeah, I love your you. wish. And Marjorie, yeah. there was one person growing up whose laughter I used to die to listen to with Barbara Streisand. And you be take hands down. I love your oh, laughter. Oh, Carl. Marjorie Thank Egan you. and Barbara Streisand. I love Barbara Streisand. Wow. Yeah. Well, when, you remember in the 60s when she was starting off, she would give you a chuckle in movies or interviews that you just loved. It just made you feel good. You do better. And well, thank you. I say this. Everybody, we just love your laughter. Oh, you know, good. So he doesn't... Yeah, it's like, it's like you're a comedy team sometimes. It's just yeah, unbelievable. Anyways, yeah. um, getting into binge watching. Yeah. You know, I have a busy week sometimes. I can't come home and have the luxury of watching something while nodding off. Mm-hmm. And it's nice on a rainy weekend that I can take the time and watch a whole series. And shut the world off. Exactly. And, you know. Well, that's when I'm really with you, nice. Carl. Snowstorms. Like if it's in the wintertime yeah, and you're rain, stuck in the rainy house. Rainy weekends. Yeah. Rainy weekends gives me an excuse not to have to go out and do the lawn. <laughs> you know, um, I just I just love it. What I want to say is I wish we could binge listen to you. Well, we have podcasts. You can binge listen to us all you that's want, right. Carl. The Boston Public Radio podcast. Just check out the podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Really? Yes. I mean, for example, Carl, on a related note, I watched 42 episodes of Greater Boston this weekend. <laughs> Just because they're only like 27 minutes long, and I, I wanted to sort of capture the essence. Yeah. Carl, thank you. And we admire your, your skills right there in the big screen. By the way, hey, Burpee, you have absolutely – here's what they are. I looked it up. Oh. It's called a squat thrust or a burpee, B-U-R-P-E-E, is a full-body exercise using strength training and an aerobic exercise. The basic movement is performed in four stages. What you do is you squat down. 
Then you throw your legs out backwards, and then you do a push-up or something. I don't know what the third thing is. And then you get up again, and you start all over again. It's a four-movement kind of thing. And what I generally do, I try to do anywhere from 25 to 50 burpees in between <laughs> segments of, yeah, uh, of binge-watching. Uh, binge Have you ever been – what's the other – what did you just say you binge-watched a few minutes ago? I did bi- binge-watch. You reminded me, House of Cards, when it, yeah. it first came out. I was binge-watching that, and that was a bad thing. Cause that ruined your – what did you do over Thanksgiving a few minutes ago, you said? I forgot Broadchurch. about it. Broadchurch. Broadchurch, yeah. yes. Yes, we were all watching it together. And, and were you not th- – we didn't spend enough time with that. How thrilled were you by, like, the third or fourth episode – when this is, is this the one when the little kid dies kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's depressing. But the, it was great trying to figure out. And you didn't want to put it down literally at the end because you're no, getting closer like murder, and closer. Like Not like mystery. a murder mystery. It is a murder mystery. It was mystery. a murder mystery. You it's like correct, a great Jim. murder mystery book. Do we have time for any more? One minute, I yes. Guess. We're very short on time. Zena from Worcester. Can you got to be quick. Thank you, you for minute. calling. Hi, Zena. Hi. Yes, I was going to say there are a lot of benefits. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. I was going to say there's a lot of benefits, and one of the benefits is catching up. So say you're one of those people who weren't watching and people are talking. You can catch up and be where uh, people are in the conversation, and it's a good way to budget your time. You're not, like, waiting week after week after week. You can say, this is the day that I'm going to catch up on this episode. Exactly. And you figure out the producers that you actually like their work. So you know what you're looking for when it comes out. That is brilliant. That is a great call. Thank approach. you, Zena. That I is like a that. great. That really is a great uh, call. Yeah, I like that. So um, I think remember was... I was inter- supposed to speaking of producers you like. Remember I was supposed to interview the guy who did uh, Mad Men, and he, he canceled because up. well, why did he stand me up? Because he had a Me Too incident that came out the morning of oh, the God, interview. That's Don't right. you remember? That's right. So I guess the bottom Winger? line here, yes, what the bottom it? line here is um, just watch out for the deep vein thrombosis. thrombosis yeah. And other than that, well, you know and what I've done. I don't want to say good snacks. What I've always done, and I think people can use this as a rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. I sit, I watch as many shows as I have time for. As soon as my legs start turning blue, I get up and have a snack. <laughs> And then I, come back, then I come back to the couch and start all over okay. again. We're supposed to have good sex. Okay, no, keep not going, supposed Marjorie. to have like salami Richard or Blanco's anything else. Next. Coming Go up, ahead. yes, he is. Okay. Coming up, uh, poet Richard Blanco is here for another edition of Village Voice with a poem and several poems actually to honor Pride Month. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie Egan. Joining us online to lead another edition of Village Voice, where we discuss poetry and how it can better help us understand our lives and times, is Richard Blanco. Richard, as you know, is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His latest book of poetry is How to Love a Country, which deals with various socio-political issues that shadow America. Richard, great to talk to you. Good to good to be back. Well. I gotta tell you, I'm gonna say something really obvious and really kind of stupid, but I'm gonna say it anyway. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think most days I'm a straight person. You never know. You know, the thing, things things could change. But one doesn't know. But for someone who's mostly been straight, you have have showed, given me an understanding of growing up gay like nobody ever has. They're just absolutely brilliant. So. 
that's after that little suck up thing. Where do you want to start? Okay. Well, what's the theme of the what's the theme of today? Is where we want oh, to what's start. The theme of today? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, uh, go ahead, Richard. Uh, June is National Pride Month, the National uh, LGBTQ uh, Pride Month. So I'm going to read some of my own LGBTQ poems um, <laughs> and share, as uh, Marjorie is saying, part of uh, I guess both these poems, uh, or two of the poems we'll read tonight, today at least, uh, deal with uh, kind of growing up gay and, and what that means. Um, um, How come, uh, Richard? Richard, you're a wonderful listener, as we know, and you haven't commented on Marjorie saying about 30 seconds ago. I've been mostly straight <laughs> in my life. I mean, well, you, know, you know, I'm single. Hello? I'm single. You know, I tried men. Maybe it's time to take a new adventure into my Face life. Your odds. Richard. That's right. One never exactly. knows. I, I, my partner was um, was married for eight years to uh, my current par- partner was married to for eight years to a woman. So you know, things happen. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, they do. I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of um, uh, uh, going, going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and I think that's um, that's uh, that's kind of what this poem speaks to a little bit. You know these strict gender roles that we grew up with, uh, but it also speaks a little bit to like you're saying, Margie, gender fluidity. And um, you know, as as far as I've uh, interacted with younger with my students, with younger kids today, it is it is more about that than a strict sexuality. Um, they just they just yeah. feel like they they don't have to adhere to any kind of gender or sexuality or stereotype or norms. And so there's more of that kind of feeling and conversation and and a sensibility uh, more than. Certainly, our generation, that's for sure. So, oh uh, God, yeah. <laughs> so what are you starting with, Richard Blanco? So this one is uh, called In Be- uh, Between Another Door, and it's from uh, How to Love a Country. Um, it's obviously autobiograph- uh, autobiographical in nature, but I chose not to write it in first person, just to open up the poem to other people's experiences a little bit more in terms of, again, having to grow up with these kinds of strict gender roles or, uh, or parameters, and also um, to the struggles that... Um, the struggles that um, Gay youth go through the confusion period when um, you're not, you know, I say youth, but even as young as I remember feeling totally confused as young as five or six when I didn't even know what sexuality was, but it was just sort of this superimposition of what I'm supposed to be and not be, and knowing that I'm queer somehow, but I don't really know what that means yet. So it's all part of this poem in some ways. Here we go. Between another door. The door between playing dress-up, parading in his mother's pleated skirt, marvelous as her clip-on ruby earrings, or noosed in his father's necktie, cuffed by his wristwatch, ticking with his pulse. The door between playing house with his cousin's Barbie dolls or careening his truck through backyard mud. The door between the coloring book prince he was supposed to be and made to color in blue, or the princess dress he dreamed of wearing, colored in pink. The door between the Wonder Woman lunchbox he pleaded for at Kmart or the Superman backpack his grandmother chose for him, the door between his face slapped for putting on a plastic tiara at Craft World or praised by his grandfather for wielding his plastic sword, the door between cowboys shooting Indians with his brother's cap gun or sipping make-believe tea with his cat Furby, the door between what he could grow up to be, a doctor or nurse, a fireman or secretary, an astronaut or housewife, but never both. The door between hula-hooping with the girls at recess or dodging the boys who trip him, shove him, bruise him. 
the door between the razzle-dazzle of pom-poms he longed to shake or the boredom of football games he couldn't follow, the door between the soft wrist of the first girl he held hands with or the stubble of the first man he kissed, the door between mother's head-bowed shame at the dinner table and his fight his fear of his father's inch-wide belt on the hook, the door between their small talk about his homework and their silences about his friends, the door between lying to a priest upright in his chair or lying with his truth on a therapist's couch, the door between playing it straight or leaving town for the rest of his life, the door between loving the only way he could love or loving a gun to his head or opening another door. You know, I just Richard, love that. I, I just found, love it. I found really interesting what you said before you read it, which was you decided not to do it in the first person so that, what, it would be more inviting or open other people. Can't you make an argument that by doing it in the first person that makes it even more intimate and in many ways it, that becomes more in, inviting to the reader or no? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, both are possible. And in this particular poem, I I, uh, I, I, I made the artistic choice. I, I, just, I just thought it edged out a little bit more and sort of made it less about me or less melodramatic about me um, and let people in a little bit more. I'm, I think maybe it didn't. But, um, I'm usually a first-person writer, actually, and I and I totally agree with that. I think, you know, the, 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 the universal is in the particular for the most part. Um, but also this poem was, was a little, exper- not experimental, but this idea of the door, the door, the door. So it wasn't a straight-up narrative. You know, it was kind of like a, a sort of a list poem, and, and so I also sort of made that choice. And, of course, the door, as I forgot to mention, it was it was a, a prompt to one of the photographs also from Boundaries as well, and it was a picture of uh, this gas station with the men's room and and the ladies' room, right? Like, we always only have these two choices, and it was like, there's a third door, right? And it's that fluidity between these ideas of gender but also a, a way out. Um, you know, one of the things that concerns me, and it comes in at the end, um, that even though we're living in a much better world today for uh, for the LGBTQ community, that, um, you know, there's it really depends where you live, and that, you know, some places are still not very safe, and yet there's this sort of, in the media and the news and TV shows, we have this sense, oh, you know, it's perfectly fine to be completely out and gay and it's normal and and, and, and all this stuff and and, it, and of course it is but it also there's other factors involved and I've I've worked with teenage youth and teenage uh, I'm sorry gay youth and uh, gay teenagers where you know they get thrown out of their house you know for coming out it's one thing to come out at 25 when you're on your own and then but to get you know thrown out of your house at 16 at 15 and just be disowned so so you know there's a lot there's a lot of that in there that you know. That 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 fear and the consequences of coming out are very are very sort of con- um, uh, specific to your family, specific to your culture, specific to your region, and it's not just sort of across the board. And of course, you <laughs> grew up in it, it, your family left Cuba, but it was very much that that culture still. Uh, and you know, you talk about the boys that, that would beat you up at school. If that well, I don't know if that was you, but the, the bullying that went on at school. And also the fact that you realized, as you said before you started, that the, there was something different about you very early on, which I always, when you hear about these people, you know, Mike, like Mike Pence and talking about conversion therapy and stuff like that, that doesn't seem to get that, you know, that this is not something that you decide to do at 14 years old, you know. By the way, there was something very different about Mike Pence early on, too, let me tell you. <laughs> 
in a totally <laughs> in a totally different kind of way, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 something that I guess it's hard to explain unless you've been there. Like, because I just remember feeling at six or seven, right? You you just know you're different, but you don't you don't have language for it. Yeah. You just know that you're different, right? And so. And then when the outside world says this is wrong because you're doing this or because, you know, I was, you know, painted my nails with my crayons, you know, or because I didn't like this or because I, I liked that. And what, it, what it, the effect is that you just feel defective and you don't even know what's wrong. You don't even know how to correct it. You don't even have that kind of consciousness or language to even know what people are talking about you, you know. And so it is a very desperate and lonely feeling. And, you know, I, I got to say, uh, as a young kid, I was so confused and, and like seven, eight, nine, ten, like confused, like and, and so in a way depressed um, and sort of just downtrodden that. You know, I, I'm not, a, I don't really, I'm not really, I've never really had real suicidal thoughts, but it, it was that kind of that feeling, just take me, you know, take me away because I just can't understand this pain. I can't, I, and I don't know how to, I don't even know how to fight back, you know, I don't even know what I'm fighting back against, you know, and so it is, a, it, it is, it is, it is a, it is a psychology that I think unless you are gay or have had or have been queer in some way, you know, because the, the, always the, the person that's the, the misfit or whatnot, it's really hard to understand. But it also makes you stronger. I don't want to just, you know, <laughs> but I think that's I think if I may be stereotypical, I think that's why a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of gay people tend to be really successful and overachievers because they grow up with this sense of being defective all the time. Right. And so they're the ones who like, you know, they have they grow up to sort of. Uh, in a way, um, co- compensate for that feeling or overcompensate right, yeah. for that feeling. Well, um, it, um, this is what, I, when yeah. I said at the beginning, how how much you help someone understand what it feels like, because in this next poem you're going to read, Queer Theory According to My Grandmother, is that you, as a child, think that you have your family around you, your mother, your father, your siblings, or your grandmother, people that you think you might be able to broach even difficult subjects. You know, a lot of kids talk about how they can't, you know, if they were some kind of sexual abuse or something, they, they, they are afraid to talk to their, their parents about it, and they feel very lonely. But, but you were kind of in this constant what's going on here thing where I think you knew from an early age that you were not going to get the solace if you did try to tell your family. Right, because in a way they were the source of, you know, um, that misunderstanding was the source of the pain. And so there's there's nowhere to, it really is a lonely space. And and also we're talking, you know, 1970s, 80s. So, the, I mean, I'm, I'm so happy to know that gay youth have, have can have those conversations now. And there's gay youth, uh, gay alliances, gay straight alliances in high school and stuff. So that's a great thing. But back then, Margie, I mean, you, I mean, even, even when you were conscious of, like in high school, there's no such thing as coming out in high school. That just did not happen. Like you did just not do that. Like that, you didn't even think about that. It wasn't even like, um, um, you know, you, it just wasn't even. It wasn't even a possibility. And so, um, so yeah, it, it's kind of like there's nowhere to turn. Um, and um, you know, I don't want to sound melodramatic. <laughs> I mean, my my gay experience by by some by some comparisons is, is actually just quite somewhat benign. I mean, there are such such worse stories, but but they all affect us in our own way, right? And it's also because you're so young. It's different if if this next poem were the things my grandmother used to tell me these despicable things. <laughs> like if you're to tell me now, I'd just be like, "Well, shut up, old lady." You know, <laughs> but when, when you're seven or eight, it's like it's like exactly. it like crushes you. There's these silly things, but they crush you because you're you're just trying to find out who you are. So, um, yeah, this poem. I love this poem. Yeah, by the it, way, this great. is just great. 
it, Go ahead, uh, Richard. Yeah, I'm it brings sorry. a little humor here. And um, so my grandmother was ever. was someone who uh, was also uh, xenophobic. Xenophobic. So like anything that was also too American, that anything that was culturally she didn't understand was also gay to her or queer. So like oatmeal was queer. Like the Brady Bunch was queer. <laughs> Um, anything that she couldn't understand. So I, that was like a double whammy for me, because if I wasn't doing something gay, gay, I was doing something that was sort of culturally odd to them, which was also gay. So like I, I couldn't win. <laughs> so, um, so this is this is a somewhat humorous, but sort of a tragic comic sort of look at, at that, at my relationship with my grandmother. And this is a persona poem. So this is written, another artistic choice, Jim. This was written in her voice um, so that mm-hmm. I don't sound like, I'm, like she can incriminate yeah. herself. <laughs> I don't have to do it for her. So, so here we go. Queer theory, according to my grandmother. Never drink your soda with a straw. Men don't use straws. Milkshakes? Maybe. Stop buying your mother's Avon catalog and the men's underwear and those Sears flyers. I've seen you. Stay out of her Tupperware parties and perfume bottles. Don't let her kiss you. She kisses you much too much. Avoid hugging men. But if you must, pat them real hard on the back even if it's your father. Must you keep that cat? Don't pet him so much. Why don't you like dogs? Never play house, even if you're the husband, and quit hanging out with that Henry kid. He's too pale, and I don't care what you call them, those G.I. Joes of his are dolls. Don't draw rainbows or flowers or sunsets. I've seen you. Don't draw at all. No coloring books either. Put away your crayons, your Play-Doh, your Legos. Where are your Hot Wheels, your laser gun and handcuffs? Those knives I gave you for Christmas. Never fly a kite or roller skate, but light all the firecrackers you want. Kill all the lizards you can. Cut up worms and feed them to that cat of yours. Don't sit Indian style with your legs crossed. You're no Indio. And stop click-clacking your sandals. You're no Tropicana course, girl. And for God's sake, never ever pee sitting down. I've seen you. Never take a bubble bath or wash your hair with shampoo. Shampoo is for women. So is conditioner, so is el mousse, so is hand lotion. Never file your nails or blow dry your hair. Go to the barber shop with your abuelo. You're not unisex, are you? Stay out of the kitchen. Los hombres don't cook. They eat. Eat anything you want except deviled eggs, blow pops, Croissants, bagels, maybe. Cucumber sandwiches and those petite fours. Don't watch Bewitched or I Dream of Genie. Don't stare at the six million dollar man. I've seen you. Never dance alone in your room. Donna Summer, Barry Manilow, The Captain, Anthony O, Bette Midler, and all musicals forbidden. Posters of kittens, Star Wars, or the Eiffel Tower forbidden. Those fancy books on architecture and art, I threw them in the trash. Now, you can't wear cologne or puka shells, and I better not catch you in clogs. If you grow a ponytail, I'll cut it off. What? No, you can't pierce your ear, left or right side. I don't care. You will not look like a goddamn queer. I've seen you, even though I know you are one. (coughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So, So, Richard... Um, did your grandmother live to see you grow up? 
Yeah, and she was my primary caretaker, so that w- it was even more poignant. But she grew up to, uh, my grandma was the pip, as you can tell from this poem. Um, and what I learned yes. from this poem is that she was also my best friend. So it was like a really complex mm-hmm. relationship. So I learned a lot from her. I got a lot of support from her. But when it came to this 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 dimension of sexuality, it was something she didn't understand. It. And in a way, in her own weird way, she... She was right, trying to, uh, you know, trying to make me a man because she knows I'm gay, but it's really about in Cuban culture and Latino culture is about machismo, so it's about appearance. So it's really about she's just trying yeah. to butch me up for in a, in a weird, obtuse kind of love because she feels that if I don't, I'm going to have this kind of pain from everybody else around the world. But yeah, uh, I, I into my uh, she died when I was in my early 30s. Um, I never really came out to her. She was already quite old, but we did have a moment on her deathbed um, where I forgave her and um, and she, okay. uh, and she let go. I mean, not forgive her, but it was kind of like ironically, uh, she had respiratory arrest, so she couldn't speak and we just looked at each other's eyes and I just gave her permission and because um, I realized through a lot of therapy and a lot of just self a lot of self inventory that my grandmother is really, really special to me and and you know relationships are complex, but um, I wouldn't be a writer, I think, if it wasn't for my grandmother in an odd way, because this constant surveilling that's in the surveillance that's in the poem (laughs) made me withdraw, and then I became an observer of the world, and that's what writers do. So uh, there's many, many layers to our relationship. You know, one one last thing about this. You know, we were talking about in the first poem you read about doing it in the first person and the third person, and which invites the reader in more. Uh, Marjorie and I have been doing this for about 20 years, and I know we both believe that unless you're talking about 9-11 or something like that, humor cracks people's minds open to allow them to begin to understand things that they're maybe resistant to uh, more than sort of lecturing them kind of thing. So are you conscious of that when you do this? Or you just decided I can do a mix of humor and sort of a a pain all in one? My point being, did you say to yourself, well, if I do it in this kind of way, and it is quite funny in spots, that that may allow more people to enter. Yeah, I think um, I always look for opportunities for humor in poem, and it's actually very hard to do because even when a poem is humorous or or whimsical, it has to have that little, like, you know, that little jab at the end, right? It has to have a certain amount of gravitas. It sort of can't always just stay in the humor. It's sort of a tragic comic element. Um, I look for that opportunity, and I think in every book I try to do at least two or three poems that that, that's an option. In this particular poem, that's exactly what happened. Um, I wrote this first um, you know, about my grandmother. And honestly, I just sounded like I was just accusing her. I sounded like I was whining, right? I sounded like, um, I don't know, I sounded like... No, but he changed, no, when he says when he wrote it about her, rather than having her say it. Right, right. And and then I thought, I'm getting in the way of this. And then my grandmother's character didn't come out either because she was funny. I mean, she she was the life of the party. And so I said, what if I just hear what my grandmother's telling me and just write that down, right? And then it lets my grandmother's character come out. It also lets the reader just see my grandmother and understand the complexities of that without me getting in the way. Of course, I created the poem, um, but... But that was definitely a choice that opened up this poem in a whole different way. And and, 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 and sometimes when you have... Actually, when you have such um, subjects that are so close and complex, sometimes it's it, it's it's... It's worthwhile, and, and it turns out to try something different actually lets the poem open up in a different way, as we say. And certainly for this poem, um, I mean, it's a whole different poem. And yet I thought when I first read this poem, I thought it was still that dramatic, um, you know, oh, my God, my grandmother poem. 
I didn't even realize it was funny. And then I'm great at the first time people started chuckling and then laughing. Then I started laughing. (laughs) And it was like, it just opened up. But humor is in poetry and elsewhere, right? It's just as another way of teaching us. It's just really, really amazing, right? Because it does let our guard down. And it teaches us truths in a different way that we walk away um, feeling like we've experienced something um, rather than been, having been told something. And that can be very powerful yeah. Um, yeah. In, in many contexts. They were both great, Richard. Thanks yeah, so Richard, much. Richard, uh, thank you. And, and, and perfect uh, for, um, for Pride Month. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Richard, thank you very much. See you, Richard. Great, great to be. Thank you. Great to talk to you. As always, Richard Blanco joins us twice a month for Village Voice. He's the fifth presidential inaugural poet in United States history. His latest book is How to Love a Country. It deals with various socio-political issues that shadow America. Thanks for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can always find us 24-7 by way of our podcast on iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. Tune in tomorrow or join us live at our WGBA studio at the Boston Public Library. Trenny Krasnerik, our sports person, is going to be there. The ACLU's Carol Rose, Sue O'Connell, our media maven. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, and Hannah Ubeli. Our uh, engineer is John the Claw Parker. Jim was on TV. Jennifer Braceris and Michael Curry are going to talk politics. We're going to talk about Trump's English sojourn, the VOP, v, the Virginia GOP killing a ban on large capacity magazines, which apparently were used in uh, Virginia Beach. And avocado toast may be a thing of the past with these Trump tariffs. It is. And then we're going to talk. Oh, yes. And then we're going to talk about one of your favorite topics, the transportation morass with former Transportation Secretary Jim Aloisi. Somebody I haven't seen in a long time, Mary Connaughton uh, from the Pioneer Institute. Adam Riley goes to Worcester to check out the welcome for the Red Sox new AAA affiliate. And I'm going to talk about the despicable Bishop Tobin at the end of uh, the show. That's it. He's Jim Brady. Uh, that's right. You're Marjorie Egan. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thank you for listening. And please tune in again tomorrow. Goodbye. See you later. Bye. Boston Public Radio is supported in part by a generous gift from the estate of Gwen Tarion in memory of Gwen Tarion and Michael Blake.